Hello and welcome everyone to A Grain of Sanderson. My name is Graham Gilman and I'm joined by Taylor Lane. Hello. And Jack McLaughlin. Hello. Uh, this is a podcast where we are foolishly attempting to read all of Brander Sanderson's work in publication order against his wishes, <laughs> as he has uh, often said that you should not start with his first book. Uh, and that is what we are doing today. We are starting with Elantris. And let's see where things begin. Uh, do you guys want to sort of introduce your backgrounds? Taylor, do you want to start? Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Taylor Lane, and I have a BA in English literature and creative writing. And right now I am currently in uh, grad school for communication. Uh, and I guess I should introduce my uh, sort of degree. I don't have any degrees at the moment. My name is Graham Gilman, uh, but I have like 90% of two degrees, uh, and am also in school for English Lits. Uh, my sort of uh, specialization in Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And uh, Jack, what are your academic credentials? <laughs> my academic credentials that are relevant here are I took a couple creative writing classes in college that I really enjoy. And uh, of the three of us, I would probably describe myself as the Brandon Sanderson fan of the trio. I've already read most of his books, and generally I've just been a fantasy fan, creative writing person, etc. And I am uh, blatantly using this podcast as a way to siphon a little bit of your English degrees away for myself. <laughs> um, Giving away our education for free. Exactly, exactly. I'm taking this as a crash course English lit using one of my uh, favorite fantasy series. Beautiful. Um... All right, do either of you have anything more you want to say, or should I read uh, the summary that I wrote for Elantris? Go for it. Okay. Uh, so this is sort of an informal summary. It's not going to cover everything. Uh, and specifically, I wanted it to be 400 words or less. So it's hovering right around there. Well, I think so. we should also start with this is a podcast that has spoilers for the book ahead. So if you... Do not want to be yes, spoiled for spoiler the book. Alert. We are going to be talking quite in depth about what happened in the book and the ending of the book. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you should probably go read now and come back and listen to this podcast later. Uh, a list of content warnings will be available in the episode description. Um, all right. So Elantris follows three characters. Rayodin, a young prince. Serene, a princess betrothed to Rayodin from a nation across the sea. And Hraithen, a militant high priest called a Yorn of the Fordel Empire, a theocratic nation. The book begins with a prologue telling us of the great city of Elantris, where the people had magic to rival the gods called Aeons, until ten years ago when the city was struck down for mysterious reasons. Anyone who becomes an Elantrian now is cursed with a corpse-like visage and is both unable to die or stop feeling pain. The book begins when Rayodin becomes cursed in this way. He's quickly thrown into Elantris and is publicly said to have died of a disfiguring disease. Serene arrives in Erelon and quickly becomes enmeshed in the political situation there and does not fully believe her husband dies of natural causes. Jorn Hraithen shortly arrives after Serene with the goal of converting the nation peacefully within three months or it shall face destruction. Meanwhile, in Elantris, Rayodin makes friends with Galadon, a farmer from the Dula Republic, a neighboring nation to Erelon, who teaches him all about the gangs of the city and the magic of the Elantrians, who even in their cursed state, all Elantrians can still perform the Aeons, seemingly without effect. 
Rayodin, not giving up hope, begins to form a new organization within the city, eventually called New Elantris, for people to exist peaceful, uh, peaceably and continues to study the mysterious magic aeons and why they stop working. Jorn Hraithen struggles to convert the population of Aralon and is outmovered by Serene, his servant Diloph, a zealot who seems more powerful than he first appeared to be, and then is eventually betrayed by Diloph, who turns out to be an abbot of a monastery of a mysterious and mutated monks trained in warfare who were sent to destroy Aralon, revealing Hraithen's peaceful conversion to be a distraction. Meanwhile, Raiden has figured out the mystery of the Aeons, realizing that the equation-like magic system is connected to the land itself and needs to be drawn differently to reflect the earthquake that happened ten years ago. Furthermore, he realizes that the city itself is one large Aeon and needs to be properly modified to restore the city. He makes the necessary changes, restoring both the city and the Elantrian people to their former glory, and using the newly restored magic of Elantris, he saves Sarid, who was endangered in a way that I think I read too quickly to fully grasp how that happened. Uh, the book <laughs> ends with Hraithen, who seems to have died, uh, but then comes back killing Diloph with a monstrous monk's hand of his own. Raodin and Serene get married, and then hold a special funeral service honoring the fallen, in particular Hraithen. I'm leaving out a lot, and the last hundred pages probably need their own 1,000-word summary. Yeah, listening to you go over the summary, uh, you had mentioned when we were setting this up but that these books are very puzzle boxy with lots of different details and lots of things going on. And listening to that summary really, really hammered that home because there's so much missed and yeah, uh, so much that it would have, I mean, we can spend the two full two hours just saying what happened and probably not get to everything. Oh, absolutely. I'm leaving out a whole like uh, political intrigue plot. I'm leaving out an attempted assassination. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot we're missing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they were Harathan or Harathan and Serene were like outmaneuvering each other pretty much every chapter that they were in. Yeah. Uh, where do we want to start, though? Um... I mean, I can start with um, a little bit. Uh, something that was really interesting to me reading this book was so I've read most of Brandon Sanderson's work at this point. However, the last time I read Elantris was, I think, eight years ago, and it was really early on on me getting into Cosmere and Sanderson's works in general and all that stuff. And when I first read it, I, when I first read it, I didn't like it that much, but I think it's because it, it feels like a first book. This is the first book he published back in, what was it, 2005, 2006? I wrote it down somewhere in my notes. 2005, um, I think. Yeah, 2005. And um, it was really interesting to read because it, uh, it definitely is the roughest book in terms of quality of prose and uh, construction and all that stuff. But it's also probably the most obvious um, representation of all of his writing styles that will become really popular in all of his future books. The, uh, I really like that word, that puzzle box style way of putting together a story where there's lots of details, lots of little informations and secrets that all eventually come together the one big climax. Um, this is probably the most extreme version of his famous Sanderlanch, which is uh, the description people use to describe his books, where they always start pretty slow and then have a very extreme climax. Um, and then one thing I'm going to be really interested to get talking about, but this will be more relevant as we get to the future books, is trends in both characters and types of plots he tends to use 
because I felt reading this book that I was seeing a lot of the same characters and ideas that end up popping up in all of his future books. Interesting. Yeah, I think this is a good time to mention that I really haven't read any Brandon Sanderson. And so this is kind of an introduction to me. I mean, I read his um, YA, I think it's called Skyward. I read Skyward and that's pretty much it. I think I read the second book, Starsight, but not the third or fourth that's out now. And that was, I think, two or three years ago. So this is this podcast is really more of an introduction to me. And I, if this is par for kind of what is ahead, I don't, I, I really sat there reading those last, I don't know, 150 to 100 pages, like, what is even going on? I had to like, (laughs) close it so many times. Every page was like, I, I I was just so blown away and I was like, I don't know if I'll be able to handle if this is every single book because like every time I thought it couldn't get crazier, it continued to get crazier. And I mean, I loved it. I thought that I love that kind of style of writing. But yeah, I think I think I was not prepared when you guys warned me or like the last 10% of the book is crazy. I don't think I fully believed you until I read it and realized, yeah, the last, those last bits it's of also, the book is insane. It's also dense. Like so much happens that the last 10% of the book took longer to get through than like the previous 50%. Oh, oh absolutely. Sure. Like it just. I, I'm not kidding when I said that like, I genuinely lost track of Serene there. Like, I, I don't know how she gets back to Tiod. Is that the name of her nation? um Teod, something like that it's like it's like the 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 monks have their own teleportation thing where they have to like sacrifice one of their members oh yeah and then they can teleport off somewhere and okay that's i got over there okay um i'm i'm again i'm sure that was in there but like it happened so quickly that i must have just like missed it or that might have been a part when i was listening to the audiobook and like you know, like you pay attention for you lose track of something for 30 seconds and like you lose a cro- plot critical detail. I think something uh, well, that's interesting about that specifically was that that teleportation circle broke his later rules. I'm sure that he kind of comes up with, which is the those magic rules where like basically in the last, you know, maybe 40 pages out from the last page, he introduces a new way that magic can be used to like oh, yeah. <laughs> jump all the way to the next continent with these monks and i was like pause and then he continues after that that's not even the only time that he starts adding random bits that magic can do there's like shootin also gets to like have his magic dance and i was like hmm, maybe this isn't the page where you introduce that this exists maybe you should have <laughs> set this up earlier or at least yeah. implied that it could have happened. Shoot in, I can forgive a little bit more. The monks, I do not forgive. <laughs> oh, I actually, I, I actually want to bring that up because you mentioned, like, you, 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 you sounded like you were talking really positively about the ending with it being very exciting. My impression was actually like, yeah, it was exciting, but I actually had a lot of problems, pretty much specifically with that. The ending to me felt very much like. Uh, Sanderson had put together this complicated situation where there's like the mystery of what happened to Elantris. There's this back and forth, like political machinations by Harathan and uh, Serene going back and forth, uh, trying to figure out who's going to be king and like all of that stuff. 
And it felt like that was coming to a political resolution. Like, it felt like Serene had won, essentially. And then it just felt like at the end, Brandon had to be like, oh, um, the plot's not over. Uh, something needs to happen. A bunch of demon monks show up. Go, attack. Oh, for that, sure. That, yeah, it felt it felt very much... The ending felt very much disconnected with the rest of the story. Yes. Like, it didn't feel like the actual climax had anything to do with what was actually happening in the story beforehand. It, I, I know there was this timer, like that's Harathan's whole story, was that um, he had to convert the nation to his uh, religion. Was it Shudareth or something like that? Shudareth, yeah. Shudareth. He had to convert the whole nation to Shudareth. He had three months, <laughs> and he was told, oh, if you don't convert them, we're going to invade. And then the ending is... Um, he fails to convert them in like a month and then Delaf that like uh his his second in command but secretly actually the leader of all the evil monks gets mad and is just like we're doing the evasion early uh no happy ending there's now an attack so it's like and also it's it's worth noting that like he's not acting alone there this is a direct order from their god king who i'm forgetting the name of their god the king the worm 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 yeah uh it's something like that i remember it started with the w um but yeah so the nation of fjordel has a god king uh who is not quite god but is like the living voice of god uh it's, so it's he's the only one who talks directly to god their whole religion is like hierarchy based yeah where it's like every single follower they don't talk to god they talk to their um Ardeth, and then Ardeths talk to something, and then they talk to Gjorns, Gjorn talk to Worm, and then Worm talks to God. Yes. It's like, that's how that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, so, yes. Uh, and Jorn is, like, sort of the equivalent of, like, a cardinal. Like, this dude works for the Pope, uh, yeah. if we were using a Catholic comparison. Uh, and as we find out, the only people who outrank Gjorns is... Uh, worm, worm, uh, and then the only other person who can outrank someone is the abbot of a monastery, uh, particularly the abbot of this monastery, which is like the Pope's secret assassins, or I guess not even assassins, because like they have a separate uh, monastery demon for just warriors. yeah, demon warriors, because they're all magically enhanced through sacrifice. They have like they have the good bones, I guess. Not just good bones, they have extra bones. Oh, that's right. They do have extra bones. That's part bones. of the description. They just have... It's like they grow extra bones, and so you try to swing a sword at them, but their rib cage is just a solid block of bone or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Natural armor, if you will. There's a lot of... There's a lot of... That's just one case of a lot of, like, body horror in this story. Not, not like, super direct. More just by, like, if you think about it too much, it starts to get really, really... Um, horrifying, but like the entire book we spend with the Elantrians who are effectively zombies and um, their whole thing is like, oh, if you get hurt, like you get a cut, you sprain an ankle, you get a bruise, that never heals, never goes away and it always hurts exactly as much as it did when you got it. Yeah. Um, and that just, uh, that just being a, so that plus the monks that like are turned into big bone monstrosities. Um, yeah, a lot of body horror going on. Like, the magic's kind of horrifying that yeah. goes on in this story. Uh, that's one of the things I wanted to bring up of just, like, uh, 
for most of the book, I would say it's solidly in the realm of YA, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, like, I think the romance between Rayodin and Serene uh, is very cute in a YA way, um, and, like, that sort of thing. And, like, tonally, it never really gets into anything particularly gruesome. But then, occasionally, you remember that, oh, this is a book marked for adults, because, like, there will be a scene of, like, there's a, a really gruesome human sacrifice later in the book. There's uh, all of these, like, horrific experimentations and modifications to these people being done. Um, and as you said, the Elantrians are, like, constantly in pain, and, like, uh, are some of them, uh, like, lose limbs and, like, lose their minds because of how painful it is. Uh, it's like, okay. <laughs> There's a bit oh, of yeah, a total inconsistency. That's the whole thing. Elantrians can't die. They just get too much pain that they just their mind breaks and they just become uh he-o'd. essentially comatose. He owed. This is this is gonna be I, I need to say this right now. It's gonna be a nightmare, uh trying to understand what everyone's talking about because the the words and proper nouns in this book, the spelling is so odd. And I just know there's going to be a lot of disagreement. I've already heard multiple words that it's like, that is not how I pronounced it in my head. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Same. Uh, I'm poisoned I've... by knowledge because of the audiobook. So, like, th- that's what I'm going off of. But also, I don't know if I should trust the audiobook narrator. Um, no offense to this man, but he had a slight New Jersey accent, uh, which made, like, a lot of the weird <laughs> fantasy-ass fantasy scenes kind of, like, it's just like, yeah, this is taking place in <laughs> Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I think, too... Elantris is actually just Hoboken. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking on the idea that this is adult, um, I think something that was very stark to me was how especially on the very, very last page, this jumped out at me, how extremely asexual this book is, like how sex almost doesn't exist, and Mm -hmm. like how it's not even mentioned at all. And then the very last thing that Serene ever says is, let me just find it, is like, oh, there it is. She smiled mischievously, like the wedding night. And then she's like, (laughs) <laughs> she's like more excited for like the wedding night than like the wedding and i was like i have like all i have like uh, lots of bullet points after that i was like this extremely asexual book just ended on a weird sexual note and i don't really know how to feel about it serene yeah. is often uh, there was like a point where serene was like a, was called like a six foot tall school girl because she was wearing like a dress and like a, a blonde wig and like R- Ryoden thought I don't know and then like this whole asexuality I think also for me because I, I really read this book through the lens of Serene I, I kind of hooked on to Serene as, as you know the woman in the character and then the woman character and then kind of all of my it's important that I said in the beginning that I did enjoy this book because I do plan to rip this book to shreds. And <laughs> yeah, me too. Serene is super interesting to read all the way through. And I think this asexuality truly is the reason why so many of the women in this book suck. Or like, like so many of the women in this book are so like one-dimensional i i counted on my notes 
I think two women in this book have more than one just like flat dimensions. I think that is Serene and um, Karata, the yeah. woman in... she She's allowed to be both a mother and a leader. Other than that, every single other woman, I was waiting, dying, especially for Eshin. I think she had a lot of potential. The, the queen had a lot of potential to be a multifaceted character. Just dies. Just dies in the end. And also is not a part of the funeral. Funeral rites is not oh, I mentioned. I forgot she died. Is not yep. mentioned in the funeral. I, justice for her, I think she was a... I, okay, well, I think I you mean, guys like, should just respond to that. Let's start with that, and you guys respond. No, I totally agree. One of the moments where I was like, wow, this book like just is not interested in talking about its women. Because I was thinking about it, and I was like, what's Serene's mom ma- name? Do we ever learn? And the answer is no. She has a father whose name is Evan Teo, and he's the king of a nation. And Serene's mom is just listed in the credits, basically, as Serene's mom. Like, Evan, T- like they're calling over their magical FaceTime. Uh, they, um, uh, I think I know what you're what, about to talk about, because I want to talk about that. Yeah, uh, so there's a, a scene where uh, Evan Teo is like, oh, let me go get your mom, I'll put your mom on. And we don't get to see that scene, or anything like that. So. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the only characterization we get of Serene's mom is that she's a calorie counter. Oh no, that's also true. The, the only characterization <laughs> she she has is that she is like trying to be skinny. She's an almond mom, and I'm like, wow, that's a crazy way to characterize the women in your book. I think it should be said, like, just just to clarify, like, not every character or relationship needs to be expanded on, right? Like, we don't know much about, you know. Duke Royals, uh, or however you pronounce his name, it's like R. It's too many vowels. R O I A L. Royal. Like we're going to we talk about, about his parent. We don't know about his parents or his former wife. Like you don't need to. You don't need to expand on every single relationship. It's just the relationships that don't get talked about are kind of like an interesting choice. Like not every character needs to be named and have this whole uh, like backstory and given all this detail to it. But when it's consistently, it's like the like it's the moms or the women women characters that are kind of put in the back or not given characterization. That's when it kind of starts to stand out as like, well, what are all these people doing? Other than um, other than Serene, it's like it's like Serene Karada, and I feel like I feel like Keen's um, De uh, Deora uh, Keen's wife. I feel like she's given some attention, but mostly just in the form of like, look how cool she is. Cool, cool wife to Uncle Keen. Absolutely. Cool on. She's the other one. Eshin, I was waiting to be multifaceted. And Dioro had so much potential to be so cool and so multifaceted and such like a nice and such like a well-rounded character that and he just ignored her all the way through. She just got to be mother. That was it. And had kind of really spoke, didn't really speak at all. I mean, we were told I'm she upset. was really smart. Like we were told she was really smart and interesting by Keen a whole bunch of times. But oh yeah, I mean, we never got to. I have receipts. Do we want to go to page one eighty three? That that <laughs> pissed this one pissed me off. Sure. I was just looking at this actually before we got on. Go ahead and read what uh, you're thinking of. It's about 
paragraph. It's like the second biggest paragraph. Deora didn't walk, she glided. And her every action was smooth and graceful. Her makeup was striking, her lips bright red, her eyes mysterious, but it had been applied with masterful subtlety. She was old enough to be stately, yet young enough to be known for her remarkable beauty. In short, she was the type of woman Serene would normally hate if she weren't the, also the kindest, most intelligent woman in court. Now tell me why Serene would hate... Why does she have to hate her? Why? I know. What is the point of that? He, I don't think... I'm going to be honest. I don't think he understands women at all. And <laughs> that's my thesis for this podcast. And I'm going to expand on that as we go on. You can as refute read, it. As we read more books. <laughs> as we read more books, we'll keep updating your opinion on it. Um, I okay. Did you read the annotation for Hope of Elantris? I did. Yeah. So and I was going to talk about that at some point. I yeah. read a different version of Hope of Elantris than the two of you did. Do we want to bring that up later, or do you want to mention what you're talking uh, about? Let's 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 bring that up later because one thing I want to actually go in just because now we're on the topic is well. Let um, me just say that looking at her. Oops, go on. So he meets his now wife in between Well of Ascension. While he's writing Well of Ascension. So during Well of Ascension is when I'm going to start clocking to see if his <laughs> women start changing. Because, so that's what I'm going to say. Um, I'll okay. be noticing. We, we, I'll be we looking. Have, we, have to save, we have to save this for Mistborn. But there's, a, there's, there's interesting things to be said about uh, fe- uh, women characters in uh, the Mistborn series as well. Uh, both like from his interviews and stuff. But we'll get to that uh, next episode, next podcast. Absolutely. Um, but but one thing I want to just because now you know segue into the topic. Looking at the looking at our group notes, uh, you put a lot of notes in here about like misogyny or feminism within the book. And Graham, I'm pretty sure you bring it up as well. Yeah. Um, well, we should probably so start with we... Taylor's notes because I think they're going to be more extensive than mine. I have two and a half pages of ranting about the misogyny in this book. <laughs> um, Excellent. <laughs> I don't know what is the most interesting place to start. I almost want to start with Ryoal. Ryoal. Ro- Roy. There's too many vowels in that name. Ryoal. Ryoal. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about. I'll talk about this later. But uh, Sanderson came up with a cool fantasy naming scheme and did not deviate. Yeah. To the detriment of it being words that actually sounded. Um, understandable Rio all said something on page 157 and i never forgave him from that moment on hated that guy number one enemy hated that he got to be <laughs> a uh hated that he got to be a martyr hated that he got to have a special wait is it on one page 57 sorry well i have the quote written down anyways okay um yeah. maybe it's 257 Hold on. Editor, please cut the time where she's looking for the quote. If you call me editor and don't acknowledge that I'm <laughs> editing this episode, I'm going to fucking kill you. Whatever. Anyways, I have it written down anyways. Though I'll have to admit. Okay, so this is real. They're at the, they're at the ball. talking. I already know what quote you're talking about. Just off those first couple words. And, oh, yeah. and he's talking to Serene. And he goes, though I'll, I'll admit, the idea of forcing one of those young puffs into my bed is tempting. 
I know they all talk, they all think I'm too old to make them perform their duties as wife, as a wife, but they assume wrong. If I were going to let them steal my fortune, I'd at least make them work for it. Shudin blushed at the comment, but Serene only laughed? I knew it. You really are nothing but a dirty old man. Self-professedly so, we all agreed with a smile. <laughs> he said that, Jesus. and he became enemy number one. <laughs> I never forgave him for that. I think he's disgusting, weird, and he thinks about women in weird ways, and... Ugh. Ugh. Well, one thing I'm one, one thing I'm then curious about your uh, curious about your thoughts on it then is what do you think Brandon Sanderson was trying for with that character? Because because clearly uh, that character by the narrative is meant to be a sympathetic. He's meant to be like he's martyred, uh, like he dies in like trying to you know solve the plot. What was it? It was uh, yeah when they were going to try and uh, do a coup, uh, he was going to be king, and he got killed. Um, and then he's kind of meant – he's clearly portrayed as supposed to be this grandfatherly figure to Serene. He's the very rich noble who is actually wise and cares about people and all that stuff. So I'm curious your thoughts on what do you think like that comment was meant to be? Because in my mind, it was meant to be like – you know, just meant to be a little joke. Like just meant to be like, aha, dirty old grandpa or whatever like that. Um, not saying that, like, not saying that's like, that's, that's okay. Like it does come across really disgusting, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about where that difference is. Cause like clearly that line was meant to give a different impression of that character than what a lot of us end up picking up in hindsight. Right. I think like, that's what he thinks that like, yeah, like dirty old men think about. Honestly, Honestly, it was more how Serene reacted to that comment, where she got to laugh and thought it was funny and was like, ha ha. But then again, Serene has a really bad case of the like, pick me, I'm one of the boys. Yeah. Like, mm, that's, the other, that's the other reason, like, that's the other thing about this book is that like, yes, Serene is multidimensional, but all of her traits that she that he gives her, they're all this very masculine power. Like she has she's strong with the sword, or she's like she can like she's like has an offen- offensive personality and stuff like that. Things that basically every other man has, but to for her it's a disadvantage. Men don't like her, and like I don't know, this all the ways that she gets to be strong, she never really gets to be strong as a woman. She gets to be strong as a man. And mo- I think it's almost, I don't think it was on purpose, but he masculinizes her a lot during this, during this book. Like he will talk about how her body type is like, what did on duke on or something called okay not everyone wants their woman to look like starving schoolboys and i said in one foul swoop objectifying women and masculinizing the only real woman with dimension in this book great job (laughs) i wonder how much of this is because um and i see this in your notes as well but like the book clearly tries to say something about feminism 
Like it's not it's not these are just these aren't just like out of nowhere comments. Um the book is trying to make a point about gender. The whole society is explicitly very patriarchal and very misogynistic and that is called out by the narrative as a bad thing. Like the right. king is um the king is crazy misogynistic. Like Serene just has to pretend to be dumb. He believes it and she's able to lead him on because he just assumes that she's an airheaded like an airheaded girl that doesn't know anything. Uh, women are expected to be quiet. There was a line about how, like, at balls, like, a woman could not be invited to a ball. It was like a man had to be invited, and he had to bring, like, his wife or partner or just, like, bring a friend who was a woman. Um, and then there's a big part of this book dedicated to Serene trying to push against that. Like, being, like, very girl bossy, very, like, Oh, I'm just going to pretend to be stupid. I'm going to use that against this stupid king who doesn't, who like thinks we're all dumb. And then there's that whole bit where he or, or she uh, teaches the other woman of the court sword fighting and like manipulates the king into letting them do that. And so there, there's like a, there's like a there's like a attempt at making like a feminist message, um, where it's like, oh yeah, no, like these women are powerful, they're valuable, they can do things, but then. The way he shows them being able to do things, like the way he's trying to show like, oh, they're just as valuable is by, look, they can also learn how to fight with swords. Yeah. And there's a moment there where I'm sort of like, there was a moment where I was almost interested in that subplot because they make it seem like uh, there's a reason that swordplay is going to be a woman's skill. Um, And Serene sort of mentions that like uh, fencing comes from Duladel, where like uh Duladel and the Dula Republic is where like uh fencing is most popular uh but in her nation of Teod the like only women do swordplay or women are allowed to do swordplay in a way where it's like this is a woman's skill but that doesn't really like come together beyond like isn't it neat that this is what the women of Teod do it's never given like a full weight into like why is this uh, culturally significant for women. Why is this not just significant in Duladel? Uh, why does this mean something to the women of Teod? And why would this mean something to the women now learning it in Aralon? And yeah. we never really get that. Yeah. I, I, so my critiques, yes. I Jack, I do know exactly what you're talking about. There is a strong feminist message. So to me, I was not really interested in all of the ways that the the text clearly wants you to think like the thing about like how she plays dumb i mean i personally think that she had to play dumb for way longer than i was comfortable with but um she, like the, the like the obvious stuff like the sword play and like the that like strong feminist message things that were like clearly sanderson was like see this is bad like like obviously pointing to that and being like that's bad like patriarchy bad I was like, and I'm not like that interested in that. The thing is, I'm interested in pointing out and being like, there was some discrepancy or like there, this was not very feminist was the things that weren't pointed out. Things like all the weird comments that they made that were not condemned by Serene. I was waiting for Serene to, to be like, that was a weird comment or like, you guys shouldn't be saying that to me. Like, I'm a strong girl boss. And she never really had her moment where she was like, don't talk to me like that. Or don't talk to me about women like that. That's weird. And so, like, 
or all the ways that she was like, I don't know, that just women weren't portrayed in a way that was like super like, like they're people, basically. Like, that's what I was interested in. The only real feminist in that book is Harathan, who immediately sees Serene be smart and is like, I like that. (laughs) Oh, Harathan. Okay. Uh, Well, actually, if you want to talk about, go ahead. (laughs) Halfway through this book, as a joke, I think they were in each other's face or something. And I was like, haha. I like wrote in the margins. I was like, haha. What if this is enemies to lovers? Imagine my surprise when 300 pages later, (laughs) um, Harathan randomly professes his love and I just had to vomit in my mouth. Oh my God. What do you know about this woman that she has, you know, blonde hair and and tits? Like you really don't know anything about her. That's why you're in love with her. I'm not going to lie. He saw... He saw a woman uh, argue back at him, and he was into that. So, that was... <laughs> and like, I don't all, forgive him that for was. that. That's disgusting. <laughs> it's, it's annoying because, like, it's, like, I can see someone writing that and thinking that that's a feminist thing. And it's like, well, not really. It's just another male fantasy of, like, that kind of woman who's, like, powerful and fighting back in this particular way. Um also go ahead taylor i've gathered i've gathered the reason why i thought it was disgusting okay is because like harathan couldn't outmaneuver her really couldn't out dominate her in any other way and so this kind of final declaration declaration it's not like love. you talk for a living or anything. Don't worry. <laughs> Final declaration of love was so, like, it just seemed like he got the final domination over her. Like, I can't. You got I, the final word. I can't dominate her, like, politically. I want to dominate her in the bedroom. Like, it was like, I was like, ugh. Uh, it's also uh, worth noting that like uh like serene while she has like like a decent level of agency throughout most of the book uh she's the damsel in distress like four or five times throughout the whole thing uh, including a really fucked up scene that we'll have to talk about later but like the ending of the book um again like the, the ending of this book is so dense but harathan dies and like uh is said to have died and then in teod uh where the climax of the book is where they've all sort of teleported to uh and are trying to prevent an insurgency there from destroying teod or at least destroying the capital of teod uh the head abbot of the monastery uh i'm using the wrong word right abbot is just the word that i'm using because that's what he is but there's a fantasy word for abbot yeah there's a fantasy word for it you look that up and see if you can find it it. uh but like diloff the head of the head abbot is like uh about to kill raodin and serene uh raodin has expended the last of his like elantrian magic which uh we learn is like stronger the closer you are to the city of elantris so like at this point he's like i can teleport us like 10 feet not like you know hundreds of miles um so we get there and 
then out of nowhere, Hraithan shows up like a cameo in an Avengers film and like comes in and just starts choking Diloph with his uh, monk's hand. Because we do learn that uh, Hraithan was one of these super monks but did not complete his training. So he only has like the good bones in one arm. Um also, Did you mean oh. Jesus? <laughs> Back yeah. from the dead? No yeah, way! A, oh my God! He yeah, sacrificed himself to save his people. Wow! <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's fine. Oh, oh we'll the word five. is the writ word is gra- graduate graduate. I'm putting it in the chat. Um. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a break and then we'll be right back. Okay, so coming back from the break, um, there's some stuff in this book that we should probably go into more specifics on. Like, uh, we haven't talked at all about Rayad. <laughs> we haven't. Um, and I feel like, in a way that makes sense, because on, on the reread of the book, I got the impression that, like, the book is called Elantris. The big fantasy thing going on with the book is Elantris. This... This big ancient city of the gods that has fallen to a terrible curse. All of its peoples are zombies. Like, that's like the fantasy hook of this whole book. However, honestly, like, Elantris felt like it had very little to do with the plot of the book. Like, the actual plot of the book was, like, the driving force, the driving uh, sense of conflict. Or rather, I should say there was basically two plots. There was the Harathan versus Serene them doing their whole back and forth political fighting for the spirit and uh, religion of the nation. And I have a lot to say about the religion of this uh, story. Um, and then there was this second story of Rowden in the city of Elantris, uh, which I actually really liked, which was him kind of finding a way to be one, trying to discover the secret of Elantris. Like, why did it fall? How do we fix it? But also in the meantime, like finding a way to give people like a way to live, like, like making a good thing out of this horror, not a good thing, but making a livable, bearable situation or, 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 or scenario out of this horrible situation. There's he's cleaning up this, uh, the city. There's him realizing that if you have a purpose, if you have a focus, if you have a job that like keeps your attention, you stop thinking about the pain or hunger too much. All of that stuff I actually really enjoyed, but it had nothing to do with the Serene or Harathan. Like it was, it was this completely separate little like story happening within the book. That like occasionally we would have a Rowden chapter that like looked in and was like, "Oh yeah, and what's he up to? Oh, he's learning more about aeons, or oh, he cleaned up this thing, or oh, whatever." It's not until the very end that it becomes relevant at all, and even then, it's the Elantris's entire purpose in the plot is to a be the scapegoat for this whole religious war going on. And two, to be the uh, be the thing that ends up winning the day. They turn they turn the lights back on in Elantris, and they're able to beat the Fjordal uh, monks, the Do- the Dakor monks, or whatever they're called. Uh, yeah. Uh, and like, uh, so 
I'm realizing like, 50 minutes in is probably not the time to introduce like my opinions on Sanderson more broadly. Uh, but I, like Jack, have read of some of Sanderson, but not to the extent that he has. Uh, but generally, I have not been a huge fan of his books. Like I think they're really interesting, uh, but typically I find they tend too much into YA for my tastes, or uh, tonally I don't like what they're doing. Um, or sometimes, like, just the narration bothers me. Um, but, uh, weirdly, I, like, Elantris has the reputation among Sanderson fans as not the one to start with. Um, uh, or, like, you know, some of them, like, straight up refer to Elantris as, like, one of the bad ones. Or sometimes just the bad Sanderson novel. And I think it's my favorite <laughs> that I've read of his. Um, like, I just genuinely really liked it. There's a lot of problems I have with it. Like, obviously what it's doing, like... Like, misogyny-wise, i really not super comfortable with how it portrays race, uh, and there are some pretty oh, fucked-up scenes uh, just in general. But I will say this sort of interlude with Rayodin is, like, sort of the most concerned I've seen him be with just, like, the material circumstances of the world. And honestly, it feels like Rayodin is just sort of hanging out in this leper colony, basically. Um, and he's hanging out in this leper colony, and he is building, like, this little communist anarchist utopia. And, like, you know, I don't think that that's entirely accurate. I don't think Brandon Sanderson is a communist in any sense of the word. But this section is very much at least interested in Marxist ideas. Because, like, I mean, the whole sort of founding idea of New Atlantis is basically from uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Like... Uh, everyone is sort of, like, contributing what they can. They have, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the craftsman, but uh, Raiden saves the life of, like, a craftsman, and immediately he's like, hey, you know what, like, Elantrians need is, like, shoes. Like, we desperately need shoes. Uh, and then, like, you know, they, <laughs> like, get more people who used to have professions, so they start, like, cleaning up the walls and stuff like that, and, um... It's, like, it's honestly my favorite part of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're so right. I think it's interesting that you, like, you know, I read it in more of a feminist lens, and it's awesome that you came with more of, like, a Marxist lens, because mm -hmm. I didn't even think about that. And um, I just loved it. I think Elantris, one, I think he did a really good job of making Elantris seem like it's always looming over Kay. Like, I think that was its importance. Like, the walls are abnormally high, and you can, like, see them from everywhere. And it was, like, Elantris was always there, like, watching. Mm -hmm. Two, I think that some of his best dialogue, some of the most dynamic um, conversations in this entire novel were between Ryodin and Galadon. The two of them, when they got into a scene together, it was just the two of them and they talked to each other. Their conversations got to meander and go in really interesting and like character depth conversations. And I, I really loved reading the two of them together and becoming friends. And, and I don't think anywhere else in the novel does like his dialogue prowess, I guess, as an author show than between those two characters. No, I, I really liked the dynamic between Red and Galadon. The two of them, like the two of them, have the most chemistry of any characters in the absolutely. book. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, the most the no, most I, chemistry. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I, and just to clarify what I said earlier, I what I was saying about the route and plot being separate. Like I, the route and plot was my favorite. I loved 
particularly one is I'm a sucker for that like hopeful message. I'm a sucker for stories which are people making the best out of a horrible situation. I'm a sucker for like that emotion. So I really enjoyed that. And then also just like the mystery of the magic and kind of piecing that together. I was just I was just kind of talking about how that plot line, like while Harathan and uh, Serene are like interwoven, uh, it's 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 kind of like there's a, uh, a Harathan chapter, a Serene chapter, going back and forth, and then over here, let's check in on what's going on with Rowden, which is something else. Um, and one thing I want to point out, actually, because uh, this might uh, something about the construction of the book. Brandon Sanderson has been really open about the um, approach he took to writing this book is called a character triad system, where he established three main characters, Rowden, Serene, and Harathan, and he would go in a rotation of there'd be a Rowden chapter, a Serene chapter, a Harathan chapter, then a Rowden chapter, Serene chapter, Harathan chapter, exactly equal until the end where it kind of intentionally breaks down. But for the majority of the book, it's this, uh, and each of these chapters happen at roughly the same time periods which it's interesting to me to like after now having read this book and then having done some digging into like because i went and found like interviews he did and talks and blogs i tried to look in some of the meta textual stuff about this book um it's interesting to see kind of how of a constricting order or set of rules he imposed on himself for this book because all of his blogs and um talking he talks about how constricting it was the fact that it's like oh they all happen at the roughly the same day that means he has to construct the plot in such a way that something interesting is happening to all three of them at the same time essentially and i feel like that comes out a lot with rowden because while harathan and serene are doing these back and forth big political maneuvering the interesting thing that's happening to rowden is he's discovering something He's discovering some cool fact of magic or he's making a new ally or friend or like learning something. So it's just like a very different color of what's happening between these two sides of the Elantrian wall uh, while also trying to give equal screen time to both. Yeah. Or I guess technically two thirds screen time to outside. I'm glad you brought up the third person limited because that's one of the things that like I wish this book was more expedient. Um, and the fact that it's so focused on, like, this triad of, like, you know, there's a Raiden chapter, there's a Serene chapter, there's a Hrathen chapter. Um, like, oftentimes it'll mean, like, we're just sort of going over stuff that, like, Serene already knows, but Hrathen has to learn in his chapter and stuff like that. And oftentimes, like, it's just a little repetitious, and I'm like, um, I, uh... I'm currently rereading the books of Earthsea uh, because of a uh, different podcast, uh, Shelves by Genre, which the Range Touch Network does. And a lot of that book pulls off tons of like really expedient maneuvers. Like uh, it'll break its narration style and be like, so while that's happening to this character, here's what everyone else sees. And that'll just be what the narration says. And it's like, I think about how, like, there are entire chapters of this book you could cut and just say, uh, and Hraithen learned this too, basically. Yeah. I, 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 I want to I stick on this because this is something I have, I have a lot to say about. But yeah, uh, something that comes up in a lot of the blogs and interviews with Sanderson is he says that, like, he, he, he's kind of proud of himself for doing this character triad style construction. But he's also never going to do it again because it was so constricting. He's just like, I'm not – like, that was too much. That was too much work spent on organizing it. And I think it's really interesting that his first published book 
is a book that has this approach to writing, which is he sets a rule, he sets a structure to how he's going to organize the book, and he doesn't deviate from it. He treats it as like the rule or gospel to how he makes this book. And it's an interesting approach to writing that I I, I saw reflected a lot because once again I don't I don't have an English degree I don't um I don't have an education in like uh, analyzing media, but uh, I've been uh, creative writing amateur writing my own stuff been in clubs gone to classes for actually writing stuff everywhere and in the first um, in the first creative writing club I was ever a part of in high school um, there was these two kids that uh, they're actually how I discovered Brandon Sanderson. Um, and I felt like their attitude towards creative writing is kind of reflective of Brandon Sanderson's where they were very like world building and structure first approach to writing. Like one of these guys, um, don't want to say name. I'm going to make up a name, Joe. Um, one of the guys, Joe, uh, I would be with him at a party or just hanging out with him and he'd be talking my ear off for literally hours about, this cool, like this cool story he was going to write, clearly inspired by Brandon Sanderson, like the hard magic and all this stuff. He was giving me all the details about here's the world, here's the political systems, here's how the magic works, and like super, super intense detail. And then I would ask, like, oh, like how far are you into the story? And he'd be like, oh, I haven't started writing yet. <laughs> um, and I feel like, or they would also talk about things like, like they would go into a story where their plan was, I have this cool magic system and I'm going to write a story where it's all second person, or I'm going to write a story where it just bounces back and forth between these two characters' perspectives. And they would, and they would have that locked in and like not let themselves deviate from those rules they set for themselves. And I feel like that, and these people were very much inspired by Brandon Sanderson. Like they read a bunch of his stuff and he's the reason they got into this club to start like doing creative writing. And I feel like looking at Elantris, I see a lot of the same thing, um, at least for the first part of the book, is it feels like a very world-building first approach style to writing. And this is kind of corroborated by looking at interviews where people ask him, like, where'd you get the idea for Elantris? Like, he, and, and this, and you'll see this too with all of his future books, like Mistborn, when people ask him for his inspiration, he has an idea for a cool magic system where he's like... I really like Chinese and its writing system, and I wonder what it would be like to live in a leper colony. I think it was funny you brought up leper colonies because he does too when he talks okay, about yeah. this book. Um, he's like, he's like, I, Chinese Chinese writing system is cool, and what would it be like to live in a leper colony? Okay, cool. I'm going to write a book about that. That's interesting. The other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of like, I do think that a lot of his uh, writing is very world building first or very magic system first. Uh, which I think is sort of interesting in regards to Elantris because we spend so much of the book with the magic system absent, uh, which I found really refreshing because, again, the only thing that the magic system really does is it serves to be this mystery about... Um, it, it serves to be this mystery about the... for Raiden to solve and, like, why did the great city of Elantris fall? Uh to which we learn is like is it's actually pretty minor of like their their magic system is reflective of the land itself so like when the land changes in this earthquake and there's a chasm now you have to draw the characters different um and like that's the whole reason it falls but the fact that the book is like really not interested in its magic system in the same way that even our next book Mistborn is uh where like it was refreshing to me as someone who typically doesn't like magic system first sorts of stories. 
what one thing that's never going to go away in his books is like the mystery around the magic system where like there's always something else to learn about his magic systems mm-hmm. but the change from elantris like as we go to mistborn with the next episode is mistborn has experts in the magic system and the magic works it's just they don't actually know everything there is to know about the magic mm-hmm. versus this system where in theory, actually, Rowden does kind of know everything there is to know about the magic system, at least in terms of, like, the Aeons and all that stuff. They're just missing one key piece, and, like, no one can figure out how to make it work. Yeah. Like, it starts with, like, no one actually knows what to do um, at all, and that's a whole mystery throughout the whole thing. Yeah, I, I liked that. I know we talked beforehand about how I picked up on the theme of truth, mm-hmm. and I think that the magic system let's because all three characters are kind of interested in finding what the ultimate truth is especially Harathan is very focused on what is true and i like how the magic system in the end has the monks who also have access to door which is what is called what is basically magic is called door in this world so they have the monks have access to door and then the Shudin have their own way to, or shoot, no, Jindoese, the, the guy's name is Shudin, also has a way to uh, access Dor, and I think that worked really well with the theme of truth just because, you know, I think in, re- in real life, there are many truths that are true. And I'm happy that in the end, the idea that there are multiple truths that can be true at the same time was kind of at least in my reading maybe that's what i was looking for so that's what i found but i think like the magic system worked well with the religious um way that truth was handled in this book sort of bouncing off of that and uh this might lead into a conversation about uh rathen um which reading his name now, like it's definitely Hrathen, but the audiobook guy says Hrathen, so that's why I've been saying it like that. <laughs> um, but sort of expanding on that idea of uh, truth and how it relates to the magic system, this book is, uh, I could see someone not knowing anything about Brandon Sanderson at all and reading this book and thinking he was an atheist, um, because like uh, Hrathen, despite the fact that he fuck. Rathen, despite the fact that he is a uh, like high priest, he's a cardinal, uh, it's pretty explicit that he doesn't really believe in his god anymore. Um, and, like, uh, he believes that, like, what is important about his religion is not the actual faith in that worm or worm is the word of god and he's god's presence here on earth. What's important is, like, Fjordel is just better. Fjordal has, like, a better system, we're more organized, we're the chosen people. We're the ones who actually deserve to rule the world. Um, and, uh, which is very interesting. I mean, like, uh, a lot of sort of the religious maneuvering, uh, really, uh, apart from Diloph, his servant, who seems to be, like, an extreme zealot, uh, the most religious person we see is Serene, and, like, uh, Serene is just not particularly religious. She's like, you know, I believe in God. I think God is good. But, like, for example, we never see anyone, like, attend Mass. Or at least we never see Serene attend Mass. We see people coming to Hrathen's, like, sermons. Uh, yeah. And we see people coming especially to Diloph's sermons. But 
for the most part, like, people's religion is, like, more political than it is, Mm -hmm. like, spiritual. Except for, like, the Elantrians' relationship to their magic. Which, again, is also, like, they're sort of like equations as well. They're not exactly faith-based at this point. Well, yeah. Well, one... One thing, quick quick correction. We do see a very religious character, other than Diloff. There's the um, Shu Karathi, like the, the Serene's religion. There's the priest of her religion. Oh, that's right. O- o- Odiv, I think his name was. Yeah, the guy who ends up marrying uh, uh, the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But actually, uh, you just made me think of something. Like, I wrote down in my notes, too, like, religion as team sports uh, as, is, like, something I got throughout the book. Um, but... And then you brought up the Elantrians' relationship to their magic. That sort of ties into that idea of truth, Taylor, you were bringing up, where it's like outside the city of Elantris, you have all of these people who are um, like really religious, but that religion is treated as like a state ideology or a team to be on or like a weapon of like political maneuvering. And then there's the Elantrians who are like a religion or gods in their own right, and they don't treat their religion that way because it's true because it's just true they don't have to convert people or convince anybody because their magic their godhood is self-evident yeah and i think that's also important to bring up that um i am not a theocratic scholar by uh, any sense of the word i have like a little bit of religious training from you know I, i went to sunday school and i was raised catholic but i do know a little bit about uh, the Book of Mormon, and I will say that, like, Elantris itself as a city uh, is described very similarly to how heaven is described in Mormon theology and, like, how people uh, are, like... Uh, it's important to remember that becoming an Elantrian is, like, chosen at random, but they all seem to be, like, good people. And sort of the idea is, like, uh, when you die, or in this case get chosen, you go to the promised land of Elantris. Um, yeah. And, like, in Mormon theology, that is, like, um, a different planet and stuff like that. It's not one-to-one. But just the way it's talked about, like, Elantris is the promised land. Yeah. Uh, Oh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Um, Yeah, and and in that way, I, you know, I obviously learned pretty early on that he was Mormon, or that Brandon Sanderson was Mormon, and that kind of started to, to... color the way that I read this book and so for the longest time I did think that either Harathan's religion was Mormonism because it kind of because the Mormons are known for going out and like they have these um what's it called not pilgrimage but um missions missions they they go on missions and they they convert people on mission, I mean, I'm. I might sound very ignorant right now, but um. So, in the way that I see, like the the colonization, I guess aspect of it, I thought that that might be. It was almost like, I guess what I was getting at is that. Harathan never really seemed to go like, all the way into like what he was doing, and to me, I almost felt like Brandon Sanderson, was scared, of being too critical of Harathan and his characterization throughout the novel at some points, because doing so would almost turn the spotlight back onto himself, like almost 
Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I understand that. And I think that's a good reading. I'm I'm not sure like how much to read these as one to one to any particular religion. Uh because like, you know, being raised Catholic, I see Catholicism most in Shudareth. That is what I was going to get to, is that in the end I understood oh no, the colonizers are the Catholics. Yeah. I understood that later, but I think in the <laughs> beginning of the book, I was unsure if Harathan was supposed to be the hero that brought, you know, Mormonism to this country, or if Harathan was the villain that, you know, was trying to impose Catholicism <laughs> onto this country. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I it no, was absolutely. hard for me to read. And I think the fact that it was hard for someone to know if he was the villain or the hero almost to me made it feel like he was he never really went all the way in for me at least on Harathan's like colonizer tendencies just because like they are so similar like they, they you can just read them both ways for most of it until the very end one the thing i'm learning from this is that the catholics have a secret monastery of demon monks <laughs> uh, no but actually 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 uh that that's actually um leads into something i wrote down because uh, when i was looking at these interviews or blog posts where he was talking about where he got the idea for elantris one of the things he himself uh brandon sanderson calls out is one of the ideas he was interested in exploring is the difference between teaching others of your faith in order to help them as opposed to teaching them in order to aggrandize yourself. Mm. Um, and and one thing that he's very open about, like uh, Brandon Sanderson, he's Mormon. Uh, as far as you can tell from his public uh, presentation, he's very faithful Mormon. Uh, he went on a mission. Uh, he went on a mission to South Korea, and he often cites that mission as where he got a lot of the kind of cultural and aesthetic inspirations for a lot of his writing. Like, you'll notice in his writing, there's a lot of inspirations from, like, Southeast Asian culture. And he does seem to, like, genuinely know that stuff really well. No, it, it is um, wild to, like, uh, no offense to Brandon Sanderson if you're listening, but, like, Brandon Sanderson looks like the whitest man you've ever seen. Uh, and it is very wild to see him in interviews just suddenly burst into fluent Korean. And, like, like I've taken, like, one Korean class. My Korean is garbage. But, the, like, in comparison, like, his Korean is so, so good. Oh, wow. I did not yeah. expect that from you. Interesting. But, but, yeah. But, anyway, yeah, he had that mission. And then he talks about his one of his inspirations for this book being that difference between, like, why you're teaching your faith. And I was reading that interview, and I couldn't help just by thinking, like, that sounds like the type of doubtful thought you might have on a mission. Like if you're you're on a mission and you're uh, maybe you're concerned with what you're doing, you're having some doubts, you're just kind of doing some introspection. That sounds like exactly the type of thought that would come up. So uh, to your point, Taylor, about Harathan never like fully committing to like what he was like, is he a colonizer? Is he a villain? Is he a hero? What is that? I think Harathan essentially was all of Brandon Sanderson's like doubts about his mission trips. Maybe I I don't want to I don't want to ascribe yeah like I I can imagine I can imagine those thoughts or the things that are being explored by Harathan as a character being Brandon Sanderson exploring those thoughts himself or 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 thinking about them. No, that's all really good information to have, and like 
Uh, I also don't want to exclusively use biography here because, like, obviously you can write something that isn't one-to-one to your life. But all of that is important to know. Like, that does seem like the sort of doubt you might have on a mission trip. Yeah. Uh, no, keep going. I, oh, I was no, just no. agreeing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to bring up about Hrothen is... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> My notes for him are kind of insane. Uh, I remember on one page, I can't remember where I wrote this note, but I just wrote, he does not have the girth. Uh, What does that mean? uh, So I keep seeing memes that are like, he's Rizless. He does not have the girth. And what what I mean by that is, uh, Hrathen is someone who thinks he has it, but doesn't. And in that way, he's the most three-dimensional character we have in the book. Um, (laughs) Which... it's really sort of fun to read. So, like, what I mean is, uh, Hrathen thinks he's brilliant, but he's constantly getting outmaneuvered. So, Serene outmaneuvers him, uh, Dilof outmaneuvers him, the Emperor, and, like, the voice of God on Earth eventually outmaneuvers him by, like, starting this attack early with the Dakor monks. Um, so, like, uh, Hrathen thinks he's, like, a player, he has all the chess pieces and stuff like that, but he really doesn't. Um, and in that way, like, he's similar to, like, a Cersei or Tyrion Lannister, who, like, these are characters who, like, we get their uh, point of view chapters in A Game of Thrones, um, but we sort of realize from, like, reading the other POV chapters is, like, oh, this person thinks they're smart, but they don't actually have it. Mm. Um, but I think what sort of works about uh, those books and, like, Part of where I'm struggling with uh, Lantris, because I do think this is a fun element for Frathlin to have, um, we never really get enough political information up front so we can understand the maneuvers as they're happening. So what will happen is uh, Hrathen will be outplayed, and then we'll have the narration or Hrathen or Dilof or someone give a bunch of political backfilling. It's like, here's the political situation, X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that is why Hrathen has been outplayed. Like, we never really know entirely enough of what's going on to get that fun dichotomy of, like, uh, Hrathen doesn't have the girth, he does not have it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we do see, like... Gotta stop using that word. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna double down. Um, uh, the other thing to keep in mind uh, with Hrathen is um, Hrathen has already completed a genocide. <laughs> Uh, the Duladel Republic. Yeah. Also, right, 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 right. He, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. I, I might be misremembering, but the fall of Duladel happened recently, within the last six months. Very recently. Yeah. So, like, very, very recently. Hrathen has not only completed a genocide; he's completed a genocide within the year. Like, yeah. so, like, uh, and he's clearly like racked with guilt over this. He's not cool with how like Duladel fell. Uh, and we don't get tons of details about how Duladel fell. Like, I don't think the Dakor monks were involved there. Like, it's, like, the way that he talks about them, it's weird that they're here in Aralon. But he basically just started a revolution. Like, he he he, he instigated political violence. And yeah. Got he started yeah. a revolution to restore the Duladel monarchy. Because Dula is the only, like, democratic nation. It's like a republic, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you bring up um this is like a slightly pivoting in a different direction please with um with something that i thought of all throughout the novel is that 
Stilif, or Dilaf, I guess. I, I read him as Dilaf. But Dilaf is often characterized in the similar ways that Serene is characterized in. And I was reading this like, man, it would have been such a cool decision if Dilaf was a woman. Dilaf is seen mm. as young, weak, unassuming, you know, constantly, but is constantly outthinking and outmaneuvering Harathin. And I was like, who else is doing that? Serene. And so, and is also seen as weak, young, and unassuming. And so I think it would have been really, really cool if Dilaf could have been this, the same exact thing, but Dilaf was a woman. I think it would play into the themes of femininity and, and womanhood in, into this book. And it would keep us, it would leave us with another character who was, you know, a woman and also like two, three dimensional yeah, it would, kind and... of add, it would kind of add that foil to Serene, which might make the feminist me- uh, message or the attempted feminist message. Yeah. Like a little more secure and make a little more sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And like the only. And Dilif would just get to be strong. Like, sh- like she could like in this alternate <laughs> reality, like she would still be a monk. She would still be super strong in the end and then like the only reason i thought that this was like a bad idea was that in the end you know dilaf is seen as this devil and making women devils is kind of overplayed an old other trope. than yeah an old trope that's kind of like uh she would get just as many bones as everybody else <laughs> well, yeah honestly i would love to see that version of the book because like i would love to see what that does to fjordal of like uh, oh yeah, because then that's like, what I was thinking. Because it, okay, say Dilaf uh, is like this abbot of this monastery and is like an incredibly powerful monk or nun or whichever it would be. Yeah, like we don't really know how women stand in Fjordal. Uh, like as far as we know, like it is a patriarchal society, but that's only because like it's run by like a pope-like figure. Um, but in terms of like women being there, that would be a really interesting element to the book to be like, actually in this way, Fjordell is better. Like things are really egalitarian there. Women have like more positions of power. Um, like, and Diloph being like, uh, again, as an abbot, Diloph would be second only to God, basically. For sure. That, that's exactly what I thought, uh, when Taylor, you brought it up is because like, uh, uh, Aralon, the the country this all takes place in, is like incredibly misogynistic. That's the narration frames that as a bad thing, even if the narration struggles to get across <laughs> yeah. why it's a bad thing, um, in a good way. But uh, but yeah, but then on Fjordo, we kind I I guess I had this assumption that Fjordo wasn't as misogynistic, but that was based purely on Harathin because it was like Harathin seems to not be directly explicitly misogynistic except in the sense that like i mean taylor you brought up that whole like power domination thing <laughs> mm-hmm. um but like we don't see a single fjordal women woman the whole book the closest we get is like lukel's wife who's Sfjordish, which is described as like kind of a satellite state or like really similar to fjordal mm-hmm. yeah or something jala, like that. Her name. yeah no yeah jala um and the thing is, is yeah, every Fjordal character, it's uh, Dilaf, it's a bunch of Arteths, which are like priests, there's Harathin, and then there's all the soldiers and monks who show up who are all men. 
Yeah. So it's it's we only see men from Fjordo. And so I, I, I totally agree that I'm 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 thinking about that now. Like, no, that would have been so cool. Like that would have that would have immediately framed Fjordo like in opposition to the misogyny of Aron. Yeah. For sure. I think I it's just such a missed opportunity. Like pretty much every characterization of Dilaf, I was like, Wow, what a missed opportunity. He would have worked so well as a woman. Yeah, the, the right at the end, I was so disappointed with Dilof because, so the final reveal for Dilof is he talks to Hrathen and or Hrathen, goddamn it, uh, <laughs> uh, he talks to Hrathen, and the uh, sort of ultimate reveal is that uh, Hrathen loved a regular woman once and took her to uh, Elantris. Dilof loved a lo- regular woman. Yes, Dilof loved a regular woman and took her to Elantris when she fell ill. Uh, Elantris tried to heal her, uh, but it didn't work, and she uh, was left in a state similar to the, like, cursed Elantrians, where, like, her body was uh, extremely damaged, uh, and, like, she tries to kill herself, but survives the suicide attempt. She jumps from the Elantris city walls, which are, like, said to be, like, miles high. They're huge. Mm -hmm. Miles high. Uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Not the point. They're supposed to be enormous. Uh, but she jumps, like, thousands of feet and survives the fall because she cannot die. Uh, so the ultimate sort of reveal is, like, Diloph hates Elantris in particular because of, like, they stole his wife away, basically. And that's okay. And, like, but also, like, not everything has to be motivated. And I think he's much more interesting... When he's just a fucked up dude. Like, when he's just an agent of this, like, empire, and he's like, hey, I love the empire, that's more compelling to me than, like, I lost my wife and I actually have a tragic backstory. It's trying to make, because Dilaf, you know, the word bigot applies here. Like, hates Erlon, hates anything non-Fjordo, hates Elantrians, thinks they're all, like, essentially demons, like, no, no matter, like, what. Um... And it's just this trend of, like, trying to give a justification where, like, that hatred, if overall not really, um, overall not justified, has a logic to it. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, Diloph has a reason to hate Elantrians. He doesn't just hate them to hate them. He has a reason. Uh, which I think is, like, annoying because, like, real bigotry doesn't have like a tragic backstory for it yeah no that that Mm. yeah that's kind of what i'm getting at yeah it would have been it would have been more true it would have been more true to the evil that is bigotry if if that was just that deal just hated it because he uh grew up in the society that was very very anti this culture these people and he was just especially um fanatic about it yeah um Pivoting a little bit from Diloph, unless, Taylor, do you have anything more you want to say about him or her? <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm good to pivot. I that I just wanted to make sure I got that in with my, my okay. headcanon or whatever. The the 20th the 20th anniversary edition of Elantris will just change all pronouns and all references to Diloph to be <laughs> she, her, and a woman, and that's the only change to the book. Do you think do you think he would change do you think he would change this woman version of Diloph to have a husband or still a wife. <laughs> I mean, in this book, it has to be husband, but it could be sister. It could be sister. literally anything. <laughs> <That'd> be <better. laughs> 
friend, good friend, <laughs> my roommate. A gal pal. <laughs> my bestie. Um, we'll get into uh, Sanderson's queer representation as we actually encounter it, but I don't think we're going to encounter that until The Way of Kings, at least from my knowledge. Actually, ju- and, and, and real quick, uh, just to make a note, one of the things I'm really interested about in this project is overall, I mean, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about like the misogyny in the book, the, the, the bad feminist message, uh, and like all of that stuff. Um, one thing that's going to be really interesting about this project overall is Brandon Sanderson writes a lot. That's kind of what he's known for. He writes a lot, and he also engages with his fandom a ton. And one thing that's going to be interesting going forward is kind of seeing the track of him changing as a writer. Right before I read Elantris, I read Sunlit Man, which at the time of recording was the most recently released book mm-hmm. um, he had. And the difference is honestly staggering. Like, I'm not going to say, um, I'm not going to say, uh, you'd have a better reading on this. I'm not going to say Brandon Sanderson has like perfect representation of um, female characters or LGBT characters or anything like that. But I think it'll be really interesting reading publication or to see how that representation changes um, as he like tries to get better at it. Because that's actually one thing you notice reading all of his books is even if he remains imperfect at it. He's, he tries. He, he's trying really hard to get better at that. And it's kind of neat to watch him learn or, like, put better representation in or uh, try to make a better attempt at these things and, like, listen to fans and stuff. Yeah, that'll be something that's interesting to track. Graham, what did you want to pivot to? Oh, uh, the only thing I wanted to pivot to is I think one of the things that we should backfill in terms of information that's happening is... Uh, during the fall of Elantris, there is a revolution that happens in Aralon where uh, the servant class or lower classes rise up and, like, kill a bunch of the Elantrian officials and nobility uh, that used to rule the nation. And also, like, there's, like, a light implication that the Elantrians were, like, quote-unquote bad masters, but, like, it it's not really explored and we don't get, like, a full picture of anything like that um and the only character that we know who had a connection to elantris like a strong connection to elantris before is galadin whose uh, father was an elantrian and basically the only connection we have there is sort of like uh the only like criticism of elantris we get through whom is like galadin's like I, he's kind of an absent dad <laughs> and right. like that's basically it um but, you know, like, he still loved Galadin and, like, let him hang out in Elantris, but he was just like, you know, I'm mostly interested in my books um, and stuff like that. So there's this cultural revolution in Erlon, uh, and who eventually rises to the top are wealthy merchants who create, like, uh, what's, the, what's the name for uh, rule by... narco capital. Uh, plutocracy. <laughs> plutocracy, thank you. <laughs> yeah, rule rule by wealth. Yeah. yeah. So it, the, it's a literal plutocracy where, like, the person with the most wealth is king. Um, yeah. And, and your titles are all based on wealth. Like, every tax season, they check your income, and it has to rise to a certain amount, or you're no longer a baron or a duke or whatever. Like, that's all based on money. Yes. Um, and I just want to have that in here, because I think it's important to understand like the political situation that serene finds herself in uh which we should probably go back to serene because like she does have a whole arc that we're sort of not talking about of like figuring out this political situation uh she does maneuver around harathan but her main arc is like how do we depose the king 
and mm-hmm. uh, uh, eventually, like, someone is like, how do we install Serene on the throne uh, without her husband there? Yeah. Um, oh, oh mean, also something else. Of- Go ahead. Just quickly on the thing about, like, the plutocracy. I mean, I wrote in the notes, I was, to me, it kind of, especially with how it falls in the end, it kind of felt a little bit like a critique of capitalism in a way where, like... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, I don't know if I was... You brought up the Marxist reading of Elantris earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if Elantris is Marxist, then, yeah, this rule by money is very capitalist and and the argument of the book is that capitalism is an insecure way to rule or like this this rule by money is an insecure way to set up a government which i thought was super metal i don't think it was on purpose but i thought it was metal uh no i i think part of it is deliberate i I, i'm torn on this because uh i do think that this book is sympathetic to marxist ideas and is, like, capitalism is an insecure way to rule is an excellent reading of, like, all of that. But at the same time, this book is so, like, skeptical of revolutions. Uh, like, every revolution we see portrayed is evil. The one that happens in Doolittle restores a monarchy, not, like, a stronger version of democracy. Uh, the, and, like, Hraithan is, like, this was a like, unbelievable war crime that happened, like... Uh, as far as we know, no one escapes Dooladel. That nation is dead, right? In a re- in a really terrifying way, um, and then the revolution that happens in Aralon, uh, like none of the nobility have servants because, or at least some of the nobility doesn't have servants because they are afraid of like revolution happening again, um, and. Uh, when we get sort of our revolutionary figures as the nobility who want to depose the king, uh, there's a sort of secret meeting of, like, several dukes and barons and uh, I think a count um, who all want to get rid of uh, Raoden's dad, the former king. Uh, but they all sort of go, uh, yes, yes, we want to get rid of him. Uh, we might want to assassinate him. But they're all sort of like... Uh, they're all sort of pro the status quo. Uh, and... I don't think that's entirely mishandled because uh, her Sion, is that how it's her? Sion. Her Sion. Uh, 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 Sion's, oh God, we haven't explained Sion's. Sion's are sort of like companions that are somehow connected to Elantris. Uh, we don't really get an explanation of how they were made or what they are, uh, but they're these spiritual like balls of light that are connected to Elantris. Uh, for the most part in the book, they act as cell phones. Um, right. Like, uh, so they act as cell phones and servants for people. Um, but uh, Hercyon, uh at one point says to Serene, he's like, you know, you're kind of like blinded by your wealth and nobility and privilege. Uh, is something that he says to her at some point. I, I wish I had a note of it. Um, but... That's never really followed through on because for the most part, like our nobles are good guys. uh, And the idea of like uh, changing the status quo too quickly is sort of one of the things that the book is critical of. Absolutely. It's very interesting that it's like both ways. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're going to see more of, um, at least in my memory of Sanderson. And who knows? And then the whole plutocracy comes down where uh, King Iadon, Iadon? I don't know. In the audiobook, they say Iadon. 
Iodin. King Iodin, on his death, at his death, has in his will, by the way, no more plutocracy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that that's a good pivot point. Let's talk about the scene. <laughs> oh God, I when we when we were talking about when we were talking before we started recording a little bit, I brought up the scene and I couldn't stop laughing at the way both of you seemed so ready to go to war over this scene. Are we talking um, about the cult scene? Yes, we're yeah. talking about so, the cult so scene. So, can, can, I'll, 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 I'll give a quick primer. So, um, there's a scene in the book where up until this point, uh, Serene and her little band of uh, sympathetic nobles are trying to find a way to depose the current king because he's the one instituting this like really uh, oppressive, uh, unstable system. Um, however, throughout the rest of the book, there's also all of these mentions of like, oh, the staff really suck here. Like my room wasn't clean or the dinner's getting late. And then they'll and then that'll be explained away by like, oh, a serving a serving girl ran off. Like a servant uh abandoned or like left or whatever. Right? Keyword girl. Um, Keep going. Mm-hmm. Keyword girl. Keyword girl. And um also at the same time, she keeps hearing weird noises in the castle. And at this point, we all know that the castle has secret passages, so we know like, okay, so someone's sneaking around. And Serene has a plan where she's just like, this has nothing, this has nothing to do with her plan on how to depose the king. She just wants to figure out what the fuck the king is doing, why he's sneaking around. So she sets up a scenario where she can follow him to one of whatever secret meeting he's having. The details aren't important. She goes off alone and um, she ends up climbing through the sewers and finding the king in the middle of a human sacrifice, specifically sacrificing a young serving girl to this like cult religion he's a part of. And that ends up being how the king gets deposed. He uh, is arrested. He hangs himself in prison. Um, all this stuff goes on. And then... He's given the rope. We never... Which I found... He's given the rope. Someone slips him rope into his thing, which I found oh, particularly right, right. disgusting. Keep going. Um, and then... That's the last we hear about it. <laughs> uh, dozens of... Uh, so, so it's it just, that's just the thing. That's just honestly like a deus ex machina. Like just a, they, they haven't been able to depose the king yet. They need to depose the king. Um, oh, good. It happened by itself. And now we're just not going to talk about it or the fact that presumably dozens of young women have been ritualistically sacrificed. Oh yeah. yeah. And I think, I think, I think the most we get is Serene. There's, there's a mention where Serene's like, she's still kind of met, like, like they're trying to get Serene to go to a party and she's not in a good mood and she blames the bad mood on seeing that sacrifice. But that's like the most we get in terms of a follow up or a, or a, or acknowledgement of just like the sheer horror of what happened. Oh yeah. It felt, it felt so much just like they failed to get the king gone and he needs to be gone. So this is how he's going to do it. Yep, he's been sacrificing girls. Cool. Move on. Next. Next point. And there was not important anymore. There was one other point that I that I pointed out for Serene, where they're like, "We need to bury him. We need to like, how should his funeral go?" And then finally, like at the very end, in Serene's head, she goes, "Ah, it's not like it matters. It, it was Iodin. Like Iodin. Like." Anyways, and I was like, "Yes, finally, someone said it. Why are we showing this guy respect?" Like. Please. He, gets, he gets a lot. 
he gets a lot more posthumous respect. Oh my goodness! Than he did the than he than he did the rest of the book. Like the rest of the book, everyone hates him. They want him gone. They talk about assassinating him. And then after he dies, they start being like, especially with this whole like he had in his will to dismantle oh the plutocracy God. when he died. And so it puts him in this like almost more respectful position after he dies when the context of how he died is he got he committed suicide after being caught ritually sacrificing like dozens of young girls. Yeah. I I you mentioned that like it only comes up once and I wanted to say this is the entire uh acknowledgement that we get after like this horror movie scene. Uh Page. Blah, 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 blah. Um, a month and a half and you've already dethroned the king. Never let it be said that you don't work king uh, quickly, Ian. Her father's words were jovial, though through his glowing face betrayed concern. He knew, as she did, that the chaos in the wake of the uprooted government could be dangerous for the peasant noble. It isn't as if I intended it, Serene protested. Merciful Domai, I tried to save the fool. He shouldn't have gotten mixed up in the mysteries. I'm also going to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, this is on page 422. Uh, Serene felt herself soften. I'm sorry, Father, she said with a sigh. I've been on edge ever since. You don't know how horrible it was. Oh, I do, unfortunately. How in Domai's name, a monstrosity like the mysteries could come from a religion as innocent as Jasker. That's it. That's the last mention. <laughs> yeah, and, and, all that, and all that acknowledgement, it's more concerned with the political repercussions and, like, the religious backstory of it. Yeah. Like, it's not... Like, there's, there's not an acknowledgement of the people who died in a horrifying way at all. It's, 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 man, I can't believe he got mixed up with that cult. And then that's, like... Yeah, which is so crazy that this book's supposed to have a feminist message. And then they, like, pretty much idolize this ritual woman killer. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, do you want to read the scene or should I? Which scene? Are we reading the whole scene? It's that's the thing. It's such. It's not a very long scene. It's like four paragraphs. Do you mean on four twenty two? I meant on four oh nine. The the actual scene of the sacrifice because I, oh. I think it's important to have this context. No, I I'd, I'd rather not read it. You can read it. <laughs> okay. So Serene is sort of sneaking through these sewer tunnels, uh, and I'm gonna pick up right when she uh, gets to where the king is. Unfortunately, she hadn't noticed the floor declined slightly, and just before the intersection, her feet slipped. She waved desperate arms, barely stabilizing herself as she slid a few feet down the incline and came to a halt at the bottom. The motion placed her directly in the middle of the intersection. Serene looked up slowly. King Iodin stared back, looking as stunned as she felt. Merciful Domai, Serene whispered. The king stood facing her behind an altar, a red streak knife raised in his hand. He was completely naked except for the blood smearing his chest. The remains of an eviscerated young woman laid tied to the altar, her torso sliced from neck to crotch. The knife dropped from Iodin's hand, hitting the muck below with a muffled plop. Only then did Serene notice the dozens of black-robed forms standing behind him, Duladin runes sewn into their clothing, each one carrying a long dagger. Several approached her with quick steps. Serene wavered between her body's urge to retch and her mind's insistence that she scream. The scream came out on top. She stumbled backwards, slipping and splashing down into the slime. The figures rushed for her, then cow uh, their cowled eyes intent. Serene kicked and struggled in the slime, still screaming, as she tried to regain her feet, and she almost missed the sound of the footsteps from her right. Then Aendel's, uh was there, and then this general comes and rescues her. Um, and again, that is on page uh, 409 and 410 in the paperback mm -hmm. copy of the book. Oh, man. 
man. That's bad. Yeah. And yeah. it's important to, for context. The previous scene is, I think, the first ball or maybe the second ball that Serena tends. Uh, and she's going there with her friend Shuden, who is, like, the youngest of these, like, sympathetic nobilities. Uh uh, and like he's the hot one is sort of how the book frames it. He's a good looking guy, and there's the sort of he's like the young desirable bachelor is like his yes exactly. Uh, and he's sort of this uh, character, and the two of them have some banter. They go to this dinner together. Uh, there's this dance. I think Serene even has at least one dance. Um, but like it's a very like standard like young adult scene, and then we uh, like the king leaves, and we go into this mystery, and it's. A horror film. Oh, like, yeah. It's so dark and so disgusting and so, like... I mean, it reads like a rape scene. Even though, like, Serene Absolutely. isn't sexually violated. Like, the mutilation done to the body and then how all these men are coming for Serene. It, it reads like a rape scene. And it's really uncomfortable and upsetting. Like, I feel like I would have less a problem with that scene if that scene acted as a pivot point where suddenly we were reading a very different story. But it's not. It just kind of happens and is used it's used exclusively as the here's how the king is no longer the king. Yeah. And oh, like man. we never really sit with it. Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah, and it, that was disgusting and then just the way that later I thought that suicide his suicide was handled quite bad. I mean I think that's very suicide is upsetting anywhere, and the fact that they were like, "Yeah, I think Eondel like slipped him the rope to make it easy," and I was like, and then she was like, "What can you do?" And I was like, "Oh, my God, I that is, mm. yeah, Mm-mm. all of it." It it really it really feels like Sanderson and, and once again I I don't I don't know I'm not in his head I don't know exactly what he was thinking when he wrote this, but it felt like he got himself into a little bit of a plot dead end and was like, I need thing to happen. Um, first thought, okay, boom, and like that that whole sequence only existed to move the plot forward, and that's contributes so much to why it's sort of disgusting because what is used just to move the plot forward is like horrifying and not acknowledged and only relevant in that one scene yeah um i wanted to bring up uh carol j adams the sexual politics of meat which is a sort of famous feminist text from the 90s um and essentially the uh, argument of the book is uh adams creates this concept called the absent referent um so an example of this would be the uh statement the rape of the earth uh which is something that she's like uh, we shouldn't say the rape of the earth, not because it's inaccurate, uh, but because what it's doing is it is removing women from their oppression. So uh, she makes the case that rape is something that happens primarily to women mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, it is a sort of unique oppression to women. Now, obviously, rape can happen to other people, but she's talking societally. Right. Um, uh, and she also makes the same case that uh, we remove uh, animals from their oppression. That is why it is the sexual politics of meat. So this concept, the absent referent, uh, oftentimes the terms for butchering are used for things that are not butchering. So like uh, a murder is described in a way that you would describe like the butchering of a hog or something like that. I'm inarticulating my point poorly. I would, <laughs> I would be reading from the book right now, but one of my friends stole my copy. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so what you're, what you're getting at is you're using uh, there are terms that are very, very linked to a specific type of oppression. And you're using those terms now to describe a different problem. Yes. And you're therefore removing the original kind of group that's being affected by that action. Yeah. So we get this scene, which is functionally a rape scene. And uh, we, it, it removes, like, any sense of, like, womanhood or any woman's feelings from this scene. Because, like, yes. Serene is not allowed to meditate on it. Yes. And I, if you're finished, are you finished? Yeah, yeah. I think that that is a really great circle back to my reading that this is an extremely asexual novel where sex almost is almost taken away, doesn't really exist Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I think that this extreme asexuality, I love this reading that you've, you've come where it's like really a rape scene because that kind of adds to my, you know, reading of this very asexual novel where women are just with if you do not have sex aka if you do not have the family the home pregnancy really birth women are extremely disempowered in this novel and it it really upset me I'd, i'd like to come back to I have page 360 here, the feminist speech. This is what I want to talk. This is the last thing I want to talk about um, that I needed to, I was dying to talk about. And I think it ties well, well with the, um, with your, your reading that it was really a rape scene where she's like, she stands in front of these women and she's like, so Serene is teaching the women to fence. Teaching them swordplay. Um, and I think I'll just... And then she's like, you guys are doing well. I'm impressed. There's a general air of satisfaction about the woman as they listen to Serene's praise. However, there was one thing that bothers me, Serene said, beginning to pace. I thought you women intended to prove your strength, to show that you were, go- you were good for more than making the, inca- the occasional embroidered pillowcase. However, so far, only one of you has truly shown me that she wants to change things in Arlon. Tarina, tell them what you did today. And it was this, to show that you are good for more than just making the occasional embroidered pillowcase, that immediately, I, I read that line and immediately said, and siring kings. And literally carrying children and birthing them. Women are strong. And any mother that is in this should have responded to that being like, no, I don't just embroider pillowcase. I have labored for, you know, the son or daughter for my husband. Like, I am. There is a strength that is so ripped apart and i think it's because of this extreme asexuality of this book where like that strength doesn't exist that it just really bothered me that that was that she had the nerve to say that yeah and And also it's erasing women's labor in other ways because like oh yeah uh the queen is seen as sort of like ditzy for lack of a better word of like she's always kind of nervous and awkward and doesn't really want to talk about like serious issues um 
But the also the implication there is Ayadin only manages like the finances of the kingdom. The household itself seems to be run by the queen, and all of the oh, households, yeah. uh, all the households are primarily run by uh, women. And like Rayadin, weirdly, is more <laughs> of a feminist than Serene is in this scene because there's a scene where like uh, someone new comes to New Elantris and is like, uh, "Oh, I'm just a housewife," and Rayadin's like, "Oh, th- you're." Uh, that means you're doing like plenty of good work. You're talented. Oh, for sure. Yeah, those are those are skill those are skills we need when we have nothing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh my goodness. Yes. And then, uh, to bring in even to bring his mother into things, I was really, really enjoying the love story, but there was this cold, this bucket of cold water that was thrown on me when he started saying. I, I did not find the page before we began, but basically he was like, yeah, I really like Serene. He reminds me, she reminds me of my mother. My mother was strong and independent and, you know, hard-headed. And I was like, oh, oh, awesome. Like, I just Roy, thought, Taylor, I, I just thought listen, you liked Taylor, her. His mom's dead. Sorry. His mom's dead. So he needs a new one. I was oh. disgusted by that scene. I was so into the love story. And then I read that part where he was like, Serene's like my mom. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) that is so nasty. I thought you would. I I wrote in. I really thought that you just liked a strong woman because she was your equal, your intellectual equal. Is that not good enough? Apparently for Sanderson, the answer is no. This the answer has to be a slight Oedipus complex, which was very uncomfortable to me. (laughs) <laughs> why is freud right <laughs> nasty unnecessary freud the, <laughs> freud the world's greatest like observer of human behavior and the world's worst explainer of human behavior <laughs> why why <laughs> for why? our audience who can't see our cameras taylor is beating her head with the copy of the lectures <laughs> i am why why does it have to do this you were so you can't have good things so you, you can't you close. like you you were having so much fun with the love story, and then that just that had to hit you. I know yeah. it was like um, he was like, "That's my wife," and it was like secret wife, like he didn't even know, like she didn't know that he knew. It was that scene where he was like, "She's like my mom," and then the other cold bucket of water over the love scene was when she was like, "You loved me when no no titles existed. I had no title, girl. What do you mean?" He knew you were the princess the moment you stepped through that door. What titles are you talking about? You're just wrong. That's, like, not true. He, like, <laughs> he knew from day one that you, like, maybe you didn't know his title. But that is not the same as him not knowing your title. Yeah. <laughs> Why, like, so those are my two cold buckets of water that splashed over that. Yeah, it's also important to keep in Overall, mind that, cute like. romance. Uh, yeah, it is a pretty cute romance. It's also important to remember that this is a uh, political marriage, and like, uh, well, I'm sure there were historically political marriages that did lead to some form of love. Like, most didn't. It was like a pretty fucked up institution. Yeah. So like, uh, while we do have also this sort of cute romance, and like, Raiden turns out to be like a pretty good dude, all things considered. Uh, most political marriages did not end that way. Uh, right. So. Like, also something to keep in mind for the romance, which, again, that's, is that's largely That's part cute. of the fantasy of it. I mean, that's part of the fantasy of it is because I think Serene even thinks about it. Like, oh, it's just a political marriage. I shouldn't be, like, too worried about it. 
and then it turns out oh it's not just a political marriage they actually do really like each other yeah um that's kind of the fan that's part of the fantasy of that like romance Ugh, yeah no their marriage and well it is set up serene says at some point or like serene's father says at some point oh you wouldn't have gone over there if you didn't think you could actually fall in love with him one day and yeah. like um i don't know just her her desperation for marriage felt Mm, it felt very tropey. It felt very gimmicky. I didn't really, I didn't love the way that she just needed a man, especially in the end, the very last page. It's like, oh, you dreamed of your wedding day all your entire life, and it's like the classic, like, ah, uh, women dream of their wedding day. But why, why couldn't have Rowden dreamed of his wedding day? Like that seems kind of weird. Real quick, that reminded me. Real quick, what is it with the society and having funerals and weddings on the same day? <laughs> Because that know. happens like twice, I think. I mean, right? <laughs> it, ha- it happens. It happens technically three times, although one of them was unintentional. Because the very beginning of the book, was <laughs> you're when right. Rowden, when <laughs> Rowden quote unquote dies, like die, they 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 he turns into an Elantrian, but the royal family keeps it secret and just says he died. Like they're like, oh, Rowden's dead. Um, and so Serene arrives, and the day she arrives, she both goes to Rowden's funeral and is told. Hey, by the way, your wedding contract says you're still, like, married to him. So, like, you still have all those responsibilities and all that stuff. Um, and then it's, like, during their plot to to overthrow the king. Yeah. Um, it's, like, the king dies. They have the funeral. And then immediately after the funeral, uh, the plan is that Serene is going to marry Lord uh, Royal um, to, like, put him in position of, like, being the king. Uh, and then, uh, and so that's another funeral and wedding on the same day. And at the very end, they just finished burying Harathin as like a hero now because he like saved the day in the end. Um, and then she's like, cool, now let's go have my wedding night. <laughs> yeah, for real. Well, actually it's the reverse because they get married and then the next scene is oh, the right, funeral. Right, right. Uh, but like, yeah, the final line of the book before the epilogue is like excited for my wedding nights, <laughs> which right. again, to Taylor's point earlier, it's just it feels so out of place in the so rest of this book. So weird, so weird to bring sex into this super, super asexual book. Listen, Brandon Sanderson's Mormon. Sex only exists after they're married. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, I know yeah, that's part of it. Um, I I'm just looking at the notes if there's any um, topics to bring up. Uh, you know, hard pivot, uh, easy easy transition. Um, one thing to talk about uh, kind of outside, like outside the actual plot, like the kind of the meta stuff. Um, this is his first published work published in 2005. He wrote it in 2000, but it's actually the sixth novel he actually wrote um, because he uh, was really into creative writing. He just wrote all the t- That's like the thing he's known for is he writes so much. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like during his graveyard shift, like a uh, hotel clerk job. That he was writing all these books. Um, the story of how it actually got published is kind of a little interesting. Because uh, what happened was he was at a convention. He met an agent. He'd been shopping around Elantris for a little while now. And, had been, and, and it was among some other books he wrote. And wasn't getting any traction. Um, he met an agent at a convention. Handed him the book. And then the only re- reason the agent actually went on to read it. Was because. Uh, oh I wrote it down somewhere. Um. Ah, oh God, where to where to go? Where to go? Where to go? Oh, I. Uh, 
He read it just because, according to the agent, he was such a nice guy and didn't want to just reject the book without looking at it. So, like, Brandon Sanders just met this guy in person, gave him the book, and then, like, nine months later, the guy actually read it and bought it. Um, I mean... And at the same time... Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Kind of shows you and how to be And extremely nice. lucky. <laughs> yeah. Extremely lucky. Uh, yeah, he published with Tor, and then he just kept writing... A bunch of the books, we're, we're, we're reading these in publication order, but it's kind of something that we'll talk about when we get to the other books, is some of the books we're going to get to, like Mistborn and Way of Kings, their first drafts were technically written before Elantris. It's just that he wrote a bunch of stuff, wrote Elantris, it got published, and then he went back and like rewrote, revised. Yeah. Like the other books. Um I mean, it's said in the annotation for Hope of Elantris that he had not written anything in Elantris since 2000. So between 2000 and 2005, he was just editing. He was editing or reading new books. Yeah. It's also important to keep in mind that we're like, we're 20 years out from Elantris, um, uh, basically. I mean, we're 20 years out next year. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a 10th anniversary edition uh, that we did not read because again publication order um but yeah like that's sort of one of the interesting challenges of this project where um a lot of this was inspired by uh the range touch network and their show just king things where they're reading the works of stephen king in publication order and i think the difference here is like sanderson by the time that elantris comes out already has a backlog and whereas king publishes carrie which, like, I think is his first complete novel. Uh, so, like, King is sort of putting these books out as he's writing. So you get to see this sort of trend as we go. And I wonder how that'll be in our project. Because, again, like like you said, like, this book comes out in 2005, but was written in 2000. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if you're saying that there's six novels, I do worry for the women in the next six novels. But I have faith. <laughs> oh, a bunch of those, a bunch of those first novels posted uh, never see the light of day. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I think uh, actually, <laughs> uh, actually, uh, I read a little bit of. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this more later, but like he has released Way of Kings Prime as like a as like a sub goal, which is because Way of Kings one of his his like most one of his most popular books, mm-hmm. um, and we're gonna get to that like a year from now in um, December, but. Yeah, but he wrote that book and it sucked so bad. And then he rewrote it for when he actually published it. But he released the original draft of it. And if you have problems with the depictions of arranged marriages and uh, depiction of women from this book, Way of Kings Prime is not your, uh, would not be your speed. And we'll get to that in 2027. (laughs) We'll get to that in 2027. Um, Right. But yeah, no. So he just. That's the interesting thing about this project. He just has so much writing. He has so much material. Um, and I'm going to be really interested because when we get to the books that are coming out today, I mean, that's going to be after a 20, 25 or more year career of writing. Oh, yeah. Graham, did you find your point in the end? Uh, not really. I mean, like, the only thing I was thinking of is, like, the lack of sexuality and I was going to go back to the sexual politics of meat. I think what I'm going to end up doing is when I sort of start floundering on my point of the sexual politics of meat, I'm going to go back in the edit and make my point more clearly. And then we can just wrap it. Then that can just be the natural wrap up 
point to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless you have anything more you want to say about like the feminism or in particular this lack of sexuality or the sacrifice. I think I made my point pretty clear. Yeah. I think, yeah. Just the idea that like, if this book is asexual, then like asexuality and cause I, I took a queer theory, a queer th- like studies class. And so like, to me, asexuality is like apart from the family, apart from like, pregnancy and birth and like because those are all wrapped up in like sexual like acts i guess especially in like modern queer yeah modern queer and readings and such like in that way and so it's like yeah just truly asexual in like a very modern and queer reading is what is happening here yeah, and it's important to keep in mind that, like, uh, a lot of ideas about, um, like, sexuality, particularly in fantasy, and it's particularly in, like, fantasy written by religious figures. I also want to bring up um, Tolkien here, mm-hmm. where, like, um, so one of the things about Eden is uh, this is before Eve gets pregnant. This is before Adam and Eve have children. Mm-hmm. And, like, the sort of peaceful state is, like, sexless. Like, right. they're naked, but it's sexless. Um, so, for example, in Tolkien's work, we never see a pregnant hobbit. Like, the Absolutely. Shire is Eden. Um, so We see very few female hobbits either. Like it's in the in the Shire we do, but like they're not they're not given anything to do. Uh, but like they exist. Um uh, you, you see a bunch of female hobbits at like Bilbo's birthday, but that's basically oh, it. Yeah. Um, so this idea of like we never see uh like pregnancy or sexual labor uh in sort of this religious figure, but like Aralon is not Eden. I don't want to make that comparison completely, but there is sort of this like legacy because unfortunately, like. Almost all fantasy is in conversation with Tolkien in some way. And I think this is one of the holdovers that we get in some ways that, like, you know, like, uh, most dwarves that people write are Tolkien's dwarves. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this sort of, like, sexlessness in uh, fantasy, you know, it's not extremely prevalent, but I think it is in some ways, like, an assumed state in for some sorts of books. Yeah. And I just... I'm... I'm try- I'm yeah exactly you're right it's an assumed state I think in especially fantasy that's a little bit older and it's just there's a lot of missed opportunity I think when you take sex away for your female characters for your women characters yeah there's a lot of power that's ripped when you impose asexuality I mean that's The other reading, though, is, like, yes, there's a lot of power that's that's ripped, but there's, like, that's not the only power that women have. Like, I, I don't want to make that point either, that, that, like, that's the only way that women have power. I think it's just, it's lack was very, it's lack in this specific novel, in this specific place, yeah. was stark to me because it would have, it would have added so much. And... On top of the fact that in my reading, I believe that a lot of Serene's strong characteristics, like super strong characteristics that made her like 
girl boss or whatever were very masculine masculinized masculinized very masculine yeah and also so, the uh, uh again like uh, women's power exists outside of sexuality but in a patriarchal society that is sort of where a lot of power for women lies yeah uh, yes thank you thank you for bringing that in okay you're correct yeah, so, like, the fact that it's absent in this book in particular, like, if it was a completely sexless novel, that's fine. Like, lots of people love Heartstopper. Uh, that is completely sexless uh, in a way that, like, many queer people are not. But that's fine. Right. Um, uh, but for it to be in a patriarchal society and not have sex at all, like, is interesting. Like, for example, there's um, uh, David Graeber, his book um, Bullshit Jobs. Uh, brings up how like sex work works in capitalism and he's like one of the things he brings up he's like i have no objection to sex work i think it is a valid form of labor uh it is a way for women to have power uh but the thing i do have an objection is we've built a society in which is this is the most powerful and most uh profitable way for women to exist is doing sex work like uh, for example, I have a friend who I'm not going to name, but she's a stripper, and she used that to pay for her education. And she's like, it's fucked up to me that uh, as a stripper right now, uh, I will have more money right now in my younger years than I will be uh, as an engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, it is, like, unfortunately, in the society, in a capitalist society, in a patriarchal society, it is unfortunately, like, one of the few avenues that women have for, like, strong power. And especially in a society that is so plutocratic and so patriarchal in Elantris, it really does read as, like, an absence that it's, like, I can see the book where that hole is filled in and it's a better one. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate you cushioning what I was trying to say. (laughs) <laughs> no, no you think... made the good point i was just no i think together we made the whole point like it was i i didn't have the entire picture and you i, I appreciate with our, pow- with our powers combined you guys made a full point no, <laughs> exactly <laughs> taylor and i sharing the brain cell for a second <laughs> period okay um one thing i i only have like this is a very this is a huge pivot from the conversation we were just having I only have, like, one more topic I wanted to go over. I don't know if you guys had, like, more points you wanted to hit on. Yeah, I, um, I would like to give everyone, like, a 20-minute warning right now. Okay. Thank you, 20. One thing, uh, th- this is a hard pivot in uh, conversation topic. Um, but just talking more about, like, the project broadly and, like, what we can expect going forward. Uh, this is uh, not just his first public uh, published book it's also the first book in the cosmere which is one of the thing and, and we, we have to talk about that going into this because it's one of the things brandon sanderson is most known for is this shared universe not all of his books happen in the cosmere and it, uh, in the cosmere um, but a lot of them do and a lot of his most popular books do the cosmere for anyone unaware is this idea that um all of these books occur in the same universe they may be happening a hundred years of like hundreds of years apart and on different planets. In fact, many of them do happen on completely different planets and they'll have different magic systems and different like cultures and different stuff going on. But part of the point is there's this like underlying truth, like we were talking about before this underlying, like true magic, true history that informs everything going on. 
Um, and for a lot of the books, it's it's almost like a Elantra ends up being kind of a microcosm for the whole Cosmere, in the sense that like for a lot of the early Cosmere books, the fact that there's this like truth, this big like this thing about gods and the history of the universe and all that stuff, is all you kind of get all that information through reference and, and mystery and intrigue and all this stuff that as the books get on, you eventually start, like it starts piecing together this like overwhelming thing. Um, Elantris is the first book in that. And as someone who knows a lot more of the Cosmere and someone who, um, who uh, has read a lot of his books and like, I, I guess I know the lore a lot in terms of the Cosmere. Um, it's interesting to see that this is his first take on it where he's going to go on to, like, write all these books that have their own magic systems, and Graham, you've described them as, like, video gamey and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, all of these books in the Cosmere are meant to all link together to this central truth, and which is why I think it's so interesting that, uh, Taylor, you brought that up so much as one of the themes of this book is truth, because I think I've now realized in hindsight that the entire way Elantris is framed and built up ends up being a microcosm overall of the Cosmere. Because this is something you'll only pick up as we read more books, but there's going to be a little bit of that, a little bit of this, like, learning details. Like, in Mistborn, they have their magic, and we think, like, okay, that's the magic. But then you'll start getting little clues and hints as to, oh, actually, that magic is the same fundamental, like, underlying truth and magic as what's going on in Elantris. Just being expressed, just being expressed differently, um, and so I think that's going to be. Of course, we're reading all of his books. We're not just reading Cosmere, uh, so, but as we get more into the Cosmere books, his most popular things, I think that I think we we want to keep coming back to that theme of truth, that theme of like there is a there is a truth behind everything people like uh, everyone people in the world are saying or claiming is true about the world. Yeah, really there was that. a state to the universe before. Um, and uh, I, I guess the other thing if we're going to bring up the Cosmere uh, I guess we gotta bring up Hoyd like he's more relevant later but like uh, <laughs> <laughs> so here so so Hoyd so uh, so this comes from like it, uh, his, his only reference in the book is he's one of the beggars Serene talks to to deliver weapons into the city however that character, Hoyd, that beggar, is in every single Cosmere book. Okay, wait, the rando... Every planet across time. Here, here's Hoyd's first appearance. Uh, Make certain you deliver these tonight, Serene said, pulling the lid closed on the final box of supplies. The beggar nodded, casting an apprehensive glance towards the wall of Elantris, which stood only a few feet away. You needn't be so afraid, Hoyd, Serene said. You have a new king now. Things are going to change in Aralon. Hoyd shrugged. Despite Telrai's death, the beggar refused to meet with Serene during the day. Hoyd's people had spent ten years fearing Iodin and his farms. They weren't used to uh, acting yeah. without enveloping the presence of night. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, so this little beggar uh, is more important <laughs> Interesting. Than, than any other. Because, I'll so keep my eye whole, The whole thing with Hoyd, the whole thing with Hoyd started with um, Brandon Sanderson talked about how as a kid, he always liked the idea that there was one guy running around in the backgrounds of all these books he was um, reading and like this guy jumping between stories and stuff. And so when he starts writing the Cosmere, he brings that forward. And it's like, no, there is literally one guy who for, mo- for most of his early appearances acts essentially just as a background observer who's in all of his books. 
and some of those books he's more obvious than others and some of those books he becomes a lot more of an actual character doing things yeah um, um like for so example Hoyt, in one of the books that i've read the tress of the emerald sea which is one of the books that came out last year he's the narrator yeah so uh so that'll be that'll be a segment we add to the podcast hoid spotting <laughs> i mean probably where in the world is Hoyt? We have <laughs> glanced over, I've realized, one final thing that we need to talk about in these last few minutes, and that's Aiden. Oh, Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. I, I was actually talking to a coworker about this uh, yesterday who had also just read Elantra. <laughs> oh, we were doing it. God. Um, I... Oh my God! It's so bad. It's so. It's so. It's yeah. So, no, no, no. Know what it is? Know what it is? It feels like the same fundamental scene of that sacrifice thing, where Brandon Sanderson had a plot problem. He needed to resolve how the fuck does Rowden know how to get to the other country in the climax? Hmm. How do I solve this? Uh, yeah, I think it's like I know. worse I'll add, though. I'll, it's I'll so add bad. A character. I'll add a character. Um, I'll add a character who is, I, the, and and I, th- this term is not okay these days, but this was, you know, back in 2000. The book does describe it, him as having mental retard- re- uh, retardation. Yeah. Um, like, it actually no, uses those Yeah, words. that is the exact quote. Um, yeah. Uh, who is, who, because of that, because of that autism, like, knows the exact distance in steps to, like, anywhere in the world. And so that's like a plot critical thing where Rowden needs to teleport to another country, but the teleportation requires you having an exact distance. Um, and so he's like, man, how do I do this? And then it turns out, hey, that um, that autistic kid of the <laughs> uncle who was secretly Elantrian the entire time uh, is actually Elantrian. And as the book puts it, got cured of his mental retardation by becoming an Elantrian. Oh, um, it sucks. shows up. It sucks shows so up, bad. Shows up and is like, oh, I know the answer. Oh, remember me? I exist in this story. I know it's exactly 2,500,000 whatever steps to the harbor of uh, this city. And that's like... All of the feminist <laughs> takes... I don't think he could be like that was just me being like critical of this novel. I don't think he could he should be like canceled for that. However, this is bad. This is not okay and should not be okay like ever. Like the fact that he's cured is so weird and so icky like yeah. Ugh. God, I, I I'd love to know what you guys thought of that character during the book. Like what you think like his point was because once again i read this book for the first time eight years ago i don't remember what i thought about the character eight years ago but reading it now like i knew what aiden's purpose was in the book reading this this time like i knew that the i knew that the only reason he was here is because at the end they're going to need to know the exact distance to a city so that was coloring like my impression where i feel like i was a lot more like on point of like seeing this character as literally just a tool of the plot who is not being treated very well but i'm curious what you guys like thought of this character just as you were reading it and then leading up to that point at the end i like what did what did you think he was there for yeah i personally thought that the reveal that he was heoed or that he was taken in atlantis i thought that was a really clever reveal which was immediately um made not that way (laughs) 
like a few pages later when they used him and he was magically cured like later i was i i was like oh that's that really just i i thought it was i guess that was my my impression my impression was that i thought the reveal was clever that he was yod and then that way that he was talked about was he wasn't bad he wasn't he wasn't he, i don't think they i don't think he was yod i think he was just was a lantrian i think that i, think the, I don't think taylor's read is entirely wrong um I, I honestly I do think he might be healed because like uh there's the scene where all the Elantrians sort of like die and like they're essentially a pile of corpses uh because they've been so badly damaged and he crawls onto the pile of bodies and like yes. passes out. I loved that reading. I thought I I love that reveal. I thought that was so cool and I was like, "Oh my gosh, the chanting, like I could have like like the way that they they ch- he chanted kind of like the healed do I could I could have connected those dots. That was a good setup to a nice conclusion. Turns out that wasn't the conclusion. And just and just to what be clear, the, it, 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 the book the book is clear about the fact that like so a whole thing is when when Elantrians experience so much pain that they basically go insane, uh, they become healed. They start chanting some mantra like that's usually represented by whatever their last thought was or last regret they keep talking about it like you'll find yeah. uh, lantrians that are under so much pain that they're just saying like i'm sorry over and over again um the the whole like reciting the number of steps to like locations with aiden that was not because he was hailed that was implied to be like he was born he was born severely autistic and um and then just along the way he happened to become a Lantrian and the family hid it and they were able to hide it so effectively because they effectively were already hiding this kid. Right. Because of his uh because of his like high levels of autism. Um Yeah. And then of course that it gets cured by him becoming an Elantrian. Which sucks. It Which sucks so, so bad. So bad, <laughs> yeah. The, I mean Yeah, it just really brings in like a lot of I mean, obviously papers that have been written between now like between 2005 and now which is talking about like how people are seen medically as the idea of being cured has been seen is seen very differently or like cure that was the part of the book that really reminded me that this book was written in 2000 so bad and like i don't want to make a claim about like disability where like the idea of him being cured sucks, and like especially it it reads it reads eugenicist to me in a way, yes. Where it's like uh, and that sort of thing, but like uh, also like I, I don't want to speak for people with disability at the same time. Of like, I, I know some disabled people who use the idea of like yeah, like my current life sucks, and like I would like an alternative, but that's not because like my current life sucks because of my disability. My sucks because we've built it. Yes. We've built society in such a way that, like, doesn't serve me in a way that it serves other people. Dis- disability is a function of your environment. Like, a wheelchair is only a disability in a city full of stairs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Like, as, yeah. as a very simplified version of that idea. No, honestly, that simplified um, take was useful because I was about to bring up another paper that we didn't <laughs> need to talk about. <laughs> right. But, yeah, um... But yeah, actually, uh, this is something that's this is something that we're gonna talk about more with future books. Actually, it might be a while before we get to that, but I'm sure it's gonna come up. This is not the last time Brandon Sanderson has magical healing. However, and it's going to be interesting to see how that like how his approach to magical healing 
changes and in the way it affects people. Um, because I'm, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but there are cases where magical healing is applied to people with some kind of uh, with some kind of mental damage. And I say I say damage specifically because it, it's people that are not like born with some kind of um, neuroatypical, but like have some sort of trauma. Right. Or people that have like physical trauma. Like um, there's one person who there's one person where the question of how does magical healing affect someone who's paraplegic mm-hmm. will come up in a later books. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that would be something to keep an eye on is magical healing coming up throughout his books more often. And yeah. what exactly does it heal? Yeah. I'll be interested. Um, oh, also, like, another thing where, like, I just sort of want to bring this up briefly. I, I don't have a lot of insight into this. I'm white. But <laughs> uh, in terms of, like, uh, the Jingdoese or Jindoese mm-hmm. uh, and, like, the exotic uh, one, uh, Shudan is really exoticized. Part of the reason that he's Absolutely. the hot one is, like... He's from uh, he's from uh, Jingdo, and he's like, it's like, ooh, look at this exotic man, this exotic sexy man, mm-hmm. um, and also uh, Galadin, who again I think is one of the better written characters. A lot of his identity is wrapped up in being Doolittle, which seems to be some sort of like combination between North African and like Italian culture. I would say, um, I think a lot of it is sort of based on stereotypes of. Uh, the Republic of Venice, uh, the historical Republic of Venice, not just the nation of Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the amount of times he was referred to as my dark friend by Rowdy. Yeah. <laughs> um, very high. It's not great. Um, but like, uh, and also it's important to know that like even Sanderson recognized some of these problems. For example, uh, Jing Doe's, I really, I don't care for like it seems like someone like baby's first like exoticized fantasy name um so the jindoese uh gets just changed to the nation of jindo in the 10th anniversary edition of atlantis which is better it's not great but it's like oh i'm glad that he recognized this um so are we gonna read the 10th anniversary when it comes up i think so i feel like that (laughs) might be fun i feel like that might be interesting We'll have a new perspective. I I think that is twenty twenty five or no, it'd be twenty twenty seven. It'll be interesting to essentially reread this book after we've gotten further into the project. Now that's mm-hmm. part, one of the things I'm genuinely um, looking forward to because, like, again, he did a second pass of it, and like authors rarely get that chance. Yeah, maybe we can come back to this podcast too and. Think <laughs> yeah, about I the mean, different ways that we <laughs> talked about it back that right, like now. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, In the interest of wrapping things up, um, because we've been talking for over two and a half hours now. uh, So I I think the last thing to kind of wrap it up, what are your overall impression of the book? And would you recommend this to people? Like, who would you recommend this to? If anybody. I would say with caveats, if you are someone like me who didn't like uh some of the other sanderson books that you've read uh you might like elantris because uh, i i fully went into this book uh, again this has a reputation of like being one of the bad ones in terms of sanderson books and i went into it and i really liked it um like 
that may be like I went in with lower expectations because I was like, oh, okay, I'm reading this for a podcast. This is work. Uh, and it's going to be work I enjoy, but like the part of this I'm looking forward to is the conversation, and then the mm-hmm. book I ended up enjoying. So maybe I would recommend this to someone who is not uh, a huge Sanderson fan uh, or has read Sanderson and found it wasn't for them. They might like this book, uh, but also it comes with the caveats of like, hey, everything we mentioned that sucks, it really sucks, and you're gonna have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of problems with this book. I I would honestly say that like before things get super super crazy i would honestly give this book a four out of five but then after that um craziness i honestly took it down for me to probably like a three and a half like Mm -hmm. i was i was really enjoying the love story i was really enjoying just learning galantris and like seeing them out maneuver each other even with all the things i talked about that was like kind of problematic and then the ending hit and it was like crazy and it was like whiplash. But like, I it, it, it took away, I think. I think that there was things that weren't set up that showed up in the ending and it, it didn't, it wasn't so, it wasn't as coherent. I think like Jack said earlier, there wasn't yeah. a lot of cohesion. And so I would say with the ending included, I'd give this book a 3.5 out of okay. 5. Uh, I think the other bit that we should uh, have is ranking the books that we've read so far. So right now, Elantris is all of our favorite books. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> of the ones we've read. Um, no, and then and then my, my final impression, I guess, is um, it was really interesting to reread this book many years later, especially having reread this book right after the whole secret project thing Brandon did, which was a lot of his most recent books. And to me, it was very interesting from a seeing the 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 roots of what would become his style of writing over the course of his career like there's a lot of things he did that you can kind of see it's like oh i i i see how this will turn into this uh uh, plan or this style or whatever um i would to people getting into cosmere i would of course recommend it like i probably wouldn't recommend it as the first cosmere book If, if what you're trying to get into is brandon sanderson's cosmere I don't think this is the best first book. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably give it a three out of five, but that's probably because uh, endings are really important to me. And I just felt the ending was so confused and chaotic that it was just, I I was enjoying the mystery of Elantris a lot. And then the ending just sort of happened. And it was like, oh, okay, I guess that is done now. Yeah. Um, but overall, I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed reading it. Yeah. Uh, and with that, uh, think we've wrapped up uh yeah the next book will be we'll be reading mistborn uh mistborn often mistborn often is the book people will say you should read first if you're trying to get into brandon sanderson including brandon uh, sanderson <laughs> including brandon sanderson it has a lot of uh th- there's definitely a lot of expectations being put on it right now um as it's a very popular book aloy please get away from the mic <laughs> um, jack's beautiful cat uh <laughs> She she had stuff to say about Mistborn also. Um, yeah, no, Mist, Mistborn will go to the uh, land of the final empire where uh, magic is metal based. Yes. Um, wow, very exciting. I'm, ac- I'm actually I'm actually genuinely really excited to start Mistborn because I personally just really love Mistborn. It's one of my favorites. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, and oh god, we don't have an outro yet. <laughs> we'll come up with one. <laughs> Bye, um, y'all. 
<laughs> thanks, for, thanks for listening. Thank yeah, you for listening. For listening. Um, uh, and then uh, after this, we'll have the credits. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. We're not doing over and out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to cut it off. A Grain of Sanderson is created by Graham Gilman, Taylor Lane, and Jack McLaughlin. I edit and produce the show. Our logo is by our very talented friend, Van Busby. Our theme music is Goodnight Kiss by Too Mellow off the album Midnight Broadcasts. You can find their work at twomellow.net, that's the number two, M-E-L-L-O, and twomellowmakes at bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, this is Graham here, right at the end of the podcast again. If you're listening to this, thank you so much for listening. You've made it to the very, very end. And here at the end, as a little reward for listening this long, is our episode zero. Um, when we were first recording, we needed an episode just so we could learn how to use our software and stuff like that. So uh, that was a test episode, and during it, we also named the podcast. We all had a bunch of names that we were suggesting, and we obviously went with a grain of Sanderson, but you can hear a little bit of that conversation, as well as some sort of fun things that we captured on mic. Okay, I I was thinking about sand, uh, sand kind of puns, and I thought a grain of Sanderson sounded really nice, like a grain of sand, a grain of Sanderson. And it's also kind of thematic because we're literally doing, we're doing everything. And it's like a grain of Sanderson is like a very small. <laughs> well, when I, my, my first thought when like a grain of Sanderson, I was actually thinking like, like my first thought reading that was more like wood grain in the sense that like, because especially matching up with what we wrote for goals of the podcast, which is, you know, see what it teaches about his writing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, we're seeing the texture of, sanderson i guess so that's that's what i got out of when i saw grain of sanderson that is good i i do like that um honestly both of those are good readings uh so uh you're already doing good literary analysis jack hell you're yeah. learning hell yeah um one thing also uh because i because because the other name ideas are really good and i don't want to like drop them I mean, subtitles are a thing. Grain of Sanderson, colon, out of the wardrobe and onto the wagon train. I really like out of the wardrobe and onto the it's wagon so, train. It's so clever. It just runs into that problem of it's going to be like over a year before we know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I could, I could explain it now. Because like, it's not like, while it is important to like Way of Kings, it's not so important that like I feel bad spoiling it. Um. Because, like, essentially the premise for that name is um, part of the reason I want to do this is I think that uh, what Sanderson is doing is he's kind of doing what C.S. Lewis did with Narnia in, like, retelling, like, Christian iconography of, like, you know, like, Aslan gets reborn on the stone table instead of, like, Jesus dying on the cross or something like that. Um, He's sort of doing that for, like, famous events in mormon imagery so instead of uh the lion the witch and the wardrobe there is a famous mormon event involving a wagon train uh so the premise is out of the wardrobe and onto the wagon train yeah yeah i did know that that's what like i i i had heard before that that's kind of what that meant it would just um it wasn't didn't you i heard that you had read a an essay that was talking about that yeah, yeah, and that'll be honestly. I think I'll bring up part of the essay, but uh, like for our first ever recording, 
Uh, but obviously the majority of it I'm going to have to save for when we get to the way of Kings. Yeah. I mean, it is something that I think would be, if you're going to, if we were going to put that, like, especially if it's going to be like a grain of sandwich and semicolon out of the wardrobe into the wagon train, um, the description has to start with in yada yada's essay, he talks about yada yada. No, that totally makes sense. I'm also fine. Like we may not necessarily even need to have this as like our definitive title or anything like that. Like I really like out of the wardrobe and onto the wagon train. I think it's uh, clever in the right way for the internet, but um, I'm fine with just like having that in the description. Like yeah, you could be that will be and like yeah, that will be in the description. Also, that's gonna be a bomb fucking title for the when we get to Way of Kings. That's gonna be the title of an episode. Like yeah, that's, that's gonna thing. be that's gonna be a fire title for an episode. It just I don't know if it's the title for the whole thing. Yeah, like honestly, I would be fine with just a grain of Sanderson. But you're right, like, brand-wise, though I hate that. I'm getting a comm degree, uh, so unfortunately, I think about these things a lot, and... We're stuck, we're stuck with these. I, yeah. I unfortunately know how to make this podcast get views. I'm cursed with that knowledge. <laughs> Poisoned by knowledge. <laughs> Poisoned by knowledge that I, I know about SEO and, and how to make things searchable, and, and people will notice, how to get people to notice things. This playmat I got specifically at, to be a mouse pad. I didn't have it as a playmat and then use it as a mouse pad. I was like, I need a new mouse pad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Taylor, unfortunately, we are going to have to read a Magic the Gathering book for this show. Wait, what? Shit, does, wait, is there? I, for, yeah. I forgot about what? that. He wrote, a, he wrote a Magic the Gathering book. He also Which wrote... Which one was that? Do, I, I have no idea. I just know that he wrote one at one point. Also... Uh, That's crazy. It, <laughs> also, uh, we're going to have to read novellas for the now unavailable uh, mobile game Infinity Blade because apparently he did the lore for that. I'm obsessed. Oh wait, Infinity Blades, Infinity Blade. I, I, I saw those on the list. I would, I would always see those come up, but I, I had no idea that was based on a uh, or that was related to a whatever a mobile game. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, no like just reading speed i mean i read pretty quickly but uh that's just because like i have a lot of time that i can dedicate to it like so like i get through a good number of books but i don't know if i actually read very fast can you tell your lefts from rights <laughs> uh like without looking most of the time <laughs> okay well that's a that's a pretty big uh tell for having dyslexia is when you can't like I, you could ask me right left at any point in time, and I will give you a blind answer, and it's usually wrong. Like I have no clue my left is. It's like, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, left and rights is a huge tell for dyslexia. Like you can't. Interesting. Um, it's like it's it is so stupid. Like you know those all those internet memes that are like you must be faking it, and I'm like I do not know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Like I do not know my lefts and rights, and like I've tried my whole life. But people, I guess, just know that inherently. And I just, I have to think about it for like a good while. Oh, damn. We've been recording for an hour. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I didn't even realize. Oh, my God. We have. Uh... 
<laughs> okay, so an hour in, a lot of tangents aside, a grain of Sanderson is the name. Yay! Yeah. That's so fun. <laughs> we got, we did it, we did it, team. <laughs> we did it. I mean, we might have done it in the first 10 minutes, but we did it. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, and that's something I could totally, I like, I just wanted something that I'm like, I'm like at kitchen, I'm at, at kitchen, no, I'm at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> i'm at christmas and my relatives are like in the kitchen presumably i, I imagine myself in the kitchen and, <laughs> and they're like 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 what's it called like or something like someone's at a bar and you're like what's it called and i can be like oh it's a grant sanderson like that's you know easy to search see it's gonna be <laughs> No one is going to care when Jack and I say that we have a podcast, but people are going to be genuinely interested when you say you have a podcast. Why? Because no one cares when, like, a white man has a podcast. <laughs> it's, basically, it's basically a stereotype. It's like, it's like yeah. oh. Uh, there's oh, also, God. I thought you were going to mention the infamous tweet, a group of white men is called a podcast. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, As a director, or as someone gets more freedom and is available to go into their own style, uh, like, there's less of a compromise with, like, a publisher or an editor, or in the case of a movie, a producer. Um, so, I, 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 again, I don't know anything about the production of Atlantis. I could be totally off base. Um, but I do like the sort of sincerity, and also, even though I think a lot of his work is right here from the beginning... I like how different it is from even his next book. Yeah. That probably should have gone in the podcast episode. Well, we were recording. It's (laughs) fine. Yeah, it's fine. Not to spoil the ending of Atlantis for Taylor, but, like, there are threads there for a sequel. What? So, like... I thought... 20 20 years down the line, there might be a sequel to Atlantis that we will have to read. Wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> wait. Wait, what What? What are you wait whating? I fucking thought Elantris was the setup for a fucking, like, eight novel shit. What is the fucking... What were you even talking about? What, the Cosmere? Okay, what is the I Cosmere? Think... Okay, okay, I will... Okay, I will give a basic... Wait, I'm never gonna see these people again? Wait, no, no. Jack, you're no! not allowed to do it, because you'll give too much detail. No! No! I can't accept this. Wow, I'm heartbroken. I'm torn into shreds. This is horrible. It might, it might be a no thing. You're like you ask, you ask the question, "What is the Cosmere during the podcast?" And I will answer you. But I think I'm gonna not. I think at Graham's urging, I'm not going to answer it now. Fine, okay. but I will. I will give the briefest explanation. But I'm not gonna let Jack do it. But essentially, all of these books are connected. Um, but uh, until we get further along the connections won't become as obvious. Uh, Okay. And then, so, for example, Mistborn is a trilogy that all takes place in the same thing. Uh, What? I think there is, uh, but, like, essentially we're going to be reading a bunch of individual series that all take place in the same universe. I'm torn to shreds. I thought this was some. Tri- I thought this was at least a trilogy. Well, that's the thing. As planned, it's supposed to be. It's just two and three haven't been written. <gasps> what? 
I'll, I'll also say I'll also say the fact that it's a shared universe is basically irrelevant until you get to the later books, other than like Easter eggs and references. Like there's not a there's not a strict reading order to the Cosmere. Like it doesn't actually matter if you read Elantris or Mistborn first or whatever. Um, I'm actually devastated and torn apart and t- I'm actually so upset. I mean, these last hundred pages, I'm really going to savor them then. Oh my God. <laughs> what the hell? No, Elantris is a single book. It's no, not a, it's not a, this is terrible news. This is terrible news. This is horrible one of my, news. <laughs> one of my favorite Brandon Sanderson works period uh, called um, The Emperor's Soul is a short story that takes place on the same planet as Elantris. No one on the planet's gonna be talked to again? What the hell? Oh, oh. Shared, shared universe means universe, oh. not shared world. <laughs> <laughs> Mist, Mistborn is a different planet. I just want them to be happy. <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> I also, I also, I will say, uh, me framing it like there is stuff for a sequel, like Elantris can be read on its own. Like it's not like it's a cliffhanger or anything. You will have a good yeah. ending and resolution. Yeah, it will. Like it will end. It will. It will be. And uh, I will end. They'll find. The, they'll find. They'll find the secret magical nukes hidden beneath Elantris and stuff. <laughs> and everyone will die. I love that. I'm so excited. Damn. Okay, guys. I'm savoring this. Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm i glad I learned this. I literally thought, I was like, oh, okay, so these three characters, we're going to see them for like eight more books, yada, yada. Like, this is going to be like a super, <laughs> like, set up thing. Like, I was like, okay, like, this is interesting to see how they were going to, like, grow and change. <gasps> okay, okay. Just this for, is the uh, second time. You guys just ripped seven books away from me. You don't understand. I just second... lost books. No, this is. But no, but it was really fun. It was really fun. Like uh, 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 one of my friends. I'm sorry, we've done this to you, Taylor. You've girl mathed um, away seven books from me. What the <laughs> hell? No, 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 no. We didn't girl math them away. You girl mathed them into existence. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. Girl math. They were there before you said something, and now I'm torn. I'm ripped. Which recommend which book to read first? Like whether she should read Warbreaker first or Mistborn first? And she kept going, but like, wait, can I just like, wait? But what's the reading order? What order am I supposed to read them in? And we and it was like really hard to get across. Like, no, like there isn't a like a, a, a reading order. There isn't a. And in this, order. we're going to argue publication order. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, there, you can't there read people... the Way of Kings until you've read three Wheel of Time books, but not the rest of the series. <laughs> Actually, speaking of the recording, let's stop it. Okay. Oh, all right.